Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and we try to understand what they're talking about. I'm Matt Brown, with me is Chris Kavanagh, and I can never remember what comes after this, Chris. I don't remember how the intro finishes, but it's going to finish differently every time from now on, I think. I noticed, Matt, you dropped the honorifics, Mm -hmm. decided to be more casual Mm -hmm. today. Yep. None of your casual maligning of me as a beer (laughs) associate (laughs) professor. No, 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 that's that. all in the past now. We're just two men. We're just, we're, men. we're just we're normal men. We're normal <laughs> men. That's <laughs> right. Are we normal? We're, we're approaching there. We're relatively normal by the standards of the internet. We're relatively normal. We're relatively normal. We do spend a couple of hours talking about random internet figures for no particular reason. But apart from that, we're surprisingly normal. I suppose that is true. People that aren't normal, Matt, that we talk about, the online gurus, some of them have been up to things. One which I thought was particularly amusing was old favorite James Lindsay had a run-in with new boy on the street, Jonathan Pajot, oh. a metaphorical religious master. And um, they got into a little conflict online, mainly, you know, as is the case, because James Lindsay came flying in with guns blazing, suddenly deciding to target Pajot for his fluffy religious nonsense and Pajot didn't take it kindly so it was just interesting to see they fired shots at each other talking about revealing your true colors and Mm. anti-enlightenment goals and all that but yeah but I think it ended with um, a suggestion from Pajot that they needed to sit down together to hash this out in a long-form podcast so yes that is right he did make that suggestion but you know Lindsay is occasionally likes to show his bad boy credentials and prove that he's not you know just a simp of the religious right so Hmm. whatever it was just funny the twitter x drama but it is always interesting when you see gurus collide in the night and and this was a funny collision i'll put a link in the show notes so people can go and look for themselves if they want in terms of online drama, Chris, I noticed something that made the grammar go ding. Oh, what was that? And that was a uh, tweet by Elon Musk on X, formerly Twitter. X is the only platform you can trust for honest information. All the others are bought and paid for. Some cultish, cultish, conspiratorial dynamics there, Chris. Yeah, just a bit. It's very on brand for Elon. And speaking... About this, there was a new interview with Elon Musk that went viral, and mainly because of his comments regarding advertisers. So I'll play that. But I I think actually the more interesting bit is what came after that. But this is the part that had the internet ablaze. You know that there's a public perception that, and you're clarifying this now, um, but there's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour, if you will. That this had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. But go fuck yourself. <laughs> Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob. If you're in the audience. Well, well, let me ask you then, 
That's how I feel. Don't advertise. Yeah, that was Musk being his brash self telling advertisers who have left the platform ostensibly over his kind of anti-Semitism and, and general promotion of conspiratorial accounts and, and kind of crap on X or Twitter that he doesn't want them there anyway. They can go bugger off because he won't be pushed around by the likes of Disney and Bob Iger and all that kind of thing. And I will say, Matt, that I thought this was this part of it was pretty much on brand for him. Oh, yeah. This is the kind of thing that he likes to say, you know, presenting himself as, you know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? Like he's this is what he likes to do. So make a statement, you know, say, go fuck yourself. It's so edgy. And he knows that that's going to appeal and like targeting Disney or corporations or whatever that also just generally plays very well. So yeah, yeah, I didn't find this bit particularly strange, but I do take the point that he is Roller directly telling advertisers, you know, to bugger off, which is unlikely to restore Twitter's positive ad revenue. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Like you say, it is on brand for him because amongst the people that, that love Elon, I think a big selling point is partly that kind of juvenile <laughs> rebel without a cause thing. But it's also the other narrative there is that he's so rich yeah, that he's he's above things like making money and, and sponsorships and things like that. He's got his eyes fixed on colonizing Mars and promoting free speech and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, it's on brand for him to advertise us to get stuffed. Yeah. So the part that interested me more was the segment after this though. So that's the the kind of viral crowd stopping. Look at me. I'm telling the advertisers to go fuck themselves. I can't be bought right moment. But listen to this little bit that comes after. How do you think then about the economics of, of X? If, 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 if part of the underlying model, at least today, and maybe it needs to shift, maybe the answer is it needs to shift away from advertising. Um, if, if you believe that this is the one part of your business where you will be beholden to those who uh, have this view, G- what do you do? F, Y. I, I understand that, but there's a reality too, <laughs> right? Yes. No, no. I, I mean, Linda Yaccarino's right here, and she's got to sell advertising. Absolutely. So, um, no, no, totally. So, so no, no, actually, what, what this advertising boycott is, uh, is, is going to do, it's, it's going to kill the company. And you think that the company... I, I, but, and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. But there are, those advertisers, I imagine, are going to say... They're going to say, we didn't kill the company. Oh, yeah? They're going to say... Tell it to, tell it to Earth. But they're going to, say that, they're going to say, Elon, that you killed the company because you said these things and that they were inappropriate things and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform, right? Let's that's that's and, what and they're going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. Yeah, that is more interesting, isn't it? I haven't heard this before, by the way, Chris. This is the first time I've heard both of those. Mm. Like, one, he doesn't really care that much if Twitter slash X goes bankrupt, right? Um, and, and that actually makes sense because he's got enough other companies, I suppose. I don't think it would send him bankrupt if it did. But the way he sees it, that it's uh, it's almost like a game and that the whole world is watching. Like, I don't know. It, he sees it in very, what's the word? Grandiose terms. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he makes appeals to Earth. Earth will respond. Like, it seems to view it that the people, right, you know, the everyday workaday folk 
are going to rise up when they realize that advertisers have fled Twitter and caused the business model to collapse. And it, like, it's an illustration of myopia, but it, like you suggest, it's also this weird view that, you know, the, the whole earth would care yeah. about Elon's company. Yeah. Really, when there's so many Twitter clones and stuff already existing, right? Yeah, like you and I are heavy Twitter users and we don't care. No. <laughs> you know, it's not that most, most people don't use it. And most people who do use it, use it only a tiny little bit. Most of us don't like it and would quite happily move to a different platform if everyone else kind of did at the same time, which would happen if Twitter went bankrupt. Yeah, and he, he does look in mannerisms and response. He doesn't look nonchalant in the actual clip, Matt. He looks like kind of bug-eyed. He looks like a surly toad. Well, he does, yes, in that image. He's kind of, you know, jutting his neck out and all this kind of thing. But also that part where the interviewer, right, when he was doing the, like, cause for effect and he didn't really get the response from that particular crowd and then they point to you know but your ceo is there they've got to sell advertisements and for a minute he kind of snaps back into oh well yeah like the you know and kind of then tries to like get out of just for a second come out of like the performance but then snaps back into it so i i don't know just like People were talking about, was he on stuff? Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But I think he's just somebody that is absolutely bought in on his own bullshit. Mm. Like he thinks he is the center of the universe. And later, actually, if you listen to the whole interview, the interviewer goes on, asks him various stuff around controversial topics, but also gets him talking about his big vision and philosophy and what motivates him in the morning and that kind of thing. And actually, when it gets to that stuff, you actually see, you know, the Elon that was having cameos in Marvel movies or whatever, you know, the, the kind of tech billionaire, slightly eccentric genius who has these big ideas about settling distant planets and, you know, is focused on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that. But it's interesting because it's basically juxtaposed with his new pilled right-wing populist character that like keeps coming out a couple of minutes later. So he just looks like someone that's fundamentally broken mm. and not in an interesting way, in the same way that people were red-pilled uncles by, you know, the Trump election or that kind of thing. Like he's a billionaire, but he's just a red-pilled conspiracy theorist billionaire. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of how he got that way, I think it's interesting as to why. I mean, part of it would be his personality. But I also think that being a billionaire for however many years has an effect on you. There's that well-known effect in Hollywood where pretty much all A-list Hollywood stars become a bit weird <laughs> just because they've been living so many years of their life where everybody treats them as the absolute center of attention, hangs on their every word, laughs at every joke, runs off to grab them a drink if they're thirsty, et cetera, et cetera. And even the ones that seem kind of endearing and nice, I've heard, <laughs> tend to be a bit weird after a career uh, at the A-list. And I imagine it's something similar is going on if you happen to have a few billion dollars, right? Yeah. It's going to just exaggerate whatever flaws you have. It's going to draw a huge amount of sycophants and it's going to, because of like prestige bias and those kind of effects, lead to people, you know, looking up to you as somebody with wisdom, not just money, insights and, you know, special powers and whatnot. And I think that has a two-way effect. Like it isn't just 
the audience who you know is is kind of bowing down and becoming parasocially attached but the subject of that attention also gets the message that they are profound insightful you know special kind of people so maybe it's just our social primate brains are not great at dealing with like you know massive amounts of attention and associated prestige could be that this is why i like to remind you that you're an associate professor you know just to help you stop you getting hit me me on the straight and now yeah but but still there are rich people who are not pilled maniacs like elon musk Mm. so yeah you know you didn't hear warren buffett endorsing Pizzagate no. or whatever conspiracy is in the news from five years ago. <laughs> That's right. It is absolutely not inevitable and not a uh, excuse. Um, Charlie Munger, his partner, died recently, and um, you know a fair few of his quotes and little bits of wisdom were floating around. And you know, it just seems like a genuinely wise and smart guy. You know, so um, yeah, you can you could be that and fabulously wealthy. It's possible. Yeah. Well, I've got a. Nice pivot from well-adjusted, reasonable people. Let's turn to the subjects of the episode this week. So just one point of clarification before we start this, okay? People make suggestions of folks that we should cover. Sometimes we get a lot of requests for individuals, and we don't think that they particularly well fit the secular guru template. But nonetheless, it's useful to cover some people that, you know, don't fit so well to see how well the garometer or the heuristics apply, because there is an entire rainbow of ways to be terrible or conspiratorial or that kind of thing. And being a secular guru is a more specific thing. So if somebody doesn't fit into that template, it doesn't mean they're good. And I just want to mention this because. This week, we're looking at a podcast called Red Scare. What, how, what would you describe Red Scare as, Matt, having listened to an episode? I would struggle to describe it. Maybe by the end of our episode, I'll be able to describe it a bit better. But after one episode, I guess it was a couple of people, mm-hmm. a couple of women, just talking about random topics with their guest in a kind of ironic, world-weary, casual kind of way yes way. sardonic might be a, good a word. word that i would use and drenched in irony so one of the issues that we're gonna face here is that to even take them seriously is to lose because anything that you point out especially when people have such a strong irony drenched presentation is to basically feel to get the joke, right? Oh, you took that seriously. We were, uh, that's just a joke or we didn't mean that. And, you know, Mm. and that's unavoidable, but this is a tactic, which is actually very common in left-wing media. I feel, especially like Chapel Trapo Funhouse or whatever it's called, side of social media. So, you know, we've seen it previously with ContraPoints Mm -hmm. in her content. She uses irony and casual self-deprecation in in quite an effective way, but it, it does provide you with a layer of protection because you can always just present it that, well, that was just 
you know, I was just making a joke and I, yeah, ironic. I'm just, and I'm just a big dummy anyway, so don't take me seriously. Yeah, I'm Joe Rogan. I'm just a comedian. But like Joe Rogan, you do notice some roller clear recurrent motifs in the content. And I think Red Scare has come to be labeled as relatively reactionary, maybe initially associated with the dirtbag left, but recent guests, if you just look at the guest list, it kind of hints about the kind of the oeuvre that you have come to expect. You might see Glenn Greenwald, you might see Alex Jones was on there. The guy that we are covering is a recent episode with a a novelist, Tao Lin, who's probably less familiar, but Steve Bannon, the Bronze Age pervert, so on, so forth. Yeah. Right. It's what you have come to expect from this neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a mistake to position them too precisely on the political spectrum because they are politically labile, I think, as as we'll kind of see. And from just the basic descriptions you can find of their podcasts in the media, um, you could see that they sort of occupied that, that area on the horseshoe where ultra skeptical, ultra ironic, left and right sort of come together but it's ambiguous it's been described as a loose hipster podcast i see on wikipedia quoting new york times yeah anyway we'll see we'll see um it's it's a it's a vibe it's a place they're from lower manhattan which seems to be somehow relevant it's got that shtick about it well the host matt the hosts who are the two hosts of this lovely podcast it's an excellent excellent question chris i'm glad you asked uh, good <laughs> <laughs> So I'm here for it. <laughs> Apparently, it's uh, Dasha Nekrasova and Anna Kachian. Anna Kachian. Um, I pronounced them wrong, but that's all right. People expect that by now. Mm. Actually, the little biography there about that was interesting because it, it reminded me of Dr. Evil's backstory because Nekrasova is a Belarusian born actress who became known as Sailor Socialism after an interview with an InfoWars reporter went viral. She immigrated to Las Vegas, Nevada with her acrobat parents when she was four. <laughs> just the the other one's got a similar similarly colorful background so i like that I like yeah they they kind of my my follower would make ludicrous claims like he invented the question mark right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so just just out of childhood but yes and the new york times review or whatever you were quoting from there mentioned the term hipster i would say that is a very good description of the vibe but it's it's kind of the hipsters that have got into the contrarian right space. So they give a little packaged history of the podcast, and here's how they describe it. We plateaued, yeah. but we had a big period of growth. Mm -hmm. We went zero to one. Mm -hmm. um, and we had some, we were both pretty active on Twitter, and so we had like pretty modest audiences. Mm -hmm. But then... Mm, I think, well, I had the sailor socialism mm -hmm. thing. I had like a viral video mm -hmm. that um, got us a lot of attention. And then I think uh, podcasts weren't, the market wasn't oversaturated. Mm -hmm. And we're based in New York, which is like a media epicenter. Mm -hmm. So it kind of like organically, I don't know. Um, and we said provocative things and like, yeah came out against me too very early we on. just started the rape apologia early on mm -hmm. and then things <laughs> fall from there <laughs> and we got a lot of negative press yeah 
Yeah. And they say that helped. Yeah. So I'm just going to say this now, Matt. There's going to be a lot of vocal fry and a lot of, yeah. And no, I don't like have that. a problem with that. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've learned that it's very sexist to have a problem with that. It's fine. That's fine. So you're going to hear quite a lot of that tone. I think the writer that like they came into the prime in a period when, you know, there was still a lot of um, space in podcasting land and they were controversial and hip and questioning me too and generating controversy. And one of them is the girl from a viral video making fun of Infowars. It's edgy, Matt. You know, what isn't the like? And also Dasha was in Succession recently. She was one of the actors in Succession. Oh, really? Like season three. Yeah. Oh, I have to check that out. I really, li- I really like Succession. No, <laughs> you've seen her. She wasn't bad in Succession. I did seem like playing a, something of a version of herself. But anyway. But Chris, I um, I listened to the whole episode, and the whole time I think in my mind I was imagining them as being like twenty something young. Oh yeah. I mean, um, yeah. But you you pointed out, and I've just checked now that they're aged uh, thirty two and thirty eight, and their guest on this episode is. And how old he is oh god i wish he was like 14 or something but he's, he's gonna be like 40 he's 40 yeah so yes this episode is one of their very recent episodes i think the most recently released episode which was called crazy autistic asians and it's because they have a novelist Tao Lin with them, who has written about autism, has some theories about autism, as we'll hear. So <laughs> let me just play a little bit to give the flavor of the podcast. And this is from the introduction, showing the kind of tone of the podcast. Um, Anna, what did you have for breakfast? Um, fuck, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> good i had oh my god i did eat something weird i went to like the cap there's like a cafeteria for un delegates by my house (laughs) i went there and i they have like a hot bar and i got like eggs and a like caprese salad Uh that sounds disgusting (laughs) That is the general tone when they're talking about breakfast, when they're talking about anything else, it's the same. And part of the appeal of it is the authentic nature of the interactions. They're not really prepared. They're just, you know, shooting the ship. We could get down with that. We're done with that, aren't we, Chris? That's our style. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, (laughs) I've just painted a picture map so people who haven't listened can get the gist of what this was like for multiple hours and and here's the introduction of Tao Lin. it was just oh, steak, I met, steak and I onions he was pretty discreet about he's it he's such a yeah humble self-abnegating person that he didn't inform anybody so happy birthday jordan uh it was steak you said steak steak and onion and cheese and oh. some other stuff yeah that sounds nice. I made Jordan a Wikipedia page for his birthday. Aww. So that flat-toned individual, that's Tao Lin, the guest. And that flat tone is going to be part of his delivery shtick. Maybe it's a side effect of autism, as he claims. Maybe not. But in any case, that kind of plodding monotone delivery is, is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for his various perspectives on this episode. So tell a little introduction to him. He's a novelist, right? 
and uh, I guess he comes from the same milieu. He's uh, very hip in terms of his output. He's kind of one of these, like an edgy modern novelist. And his his work has attracted a fair bit of praise, but it's also attracted a fair bit of criticism. Again, this is just from Wikipedia research, so don't take this too seriously. But Gorka called him maybe perhaps the single most irritating person we've ever had to deal with. And then um, to which Lynn retaliated by completely covering the front door of the Gorker office building with stickers bearing Britney Spears' name, which is like yeah, a form of protest, I guess. Elle magazine wrote, we've long been deeply irked by Lynn's vacuous posturing. And I know you are, but what am I? Dorm room philosophizing. So those are a couple of negative statements, but you know, he's written quite a few books and they've attracted some positive sort of arty literary feedback as well. So that's who he is. He's a celebrated author and I think he does the writing about your life in a vaguely disguised manner style from what he describes in this episode. So I think he is celebrated by various literary critic types as well as some regarding him as an intellectual poser. I might lean more heavily towards the latter based on this conversation, but I actually don't think that in general to be a good artist or a good writer that you need to be somebody who is, you know, au fait with, with science or not a conspiracy theorist. I'm sure there are plenty of very good authors who have very stupid insights into autism or whatever, politics, whatever you care about. So actually, I don't think that the stuff that we're going to cover in this episode mm. would necessarily mean that his output is bad or that kind of thing, because it, it's art, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, artists famously known for having very stable and grounded personalities. Um, no, but I did notice like the general theme with that stuff, which is he is, his writing is super hip and it's cool with a certain edgy, sophisticated crowd. He's clearly got a, a knack for self-promotion many and, you know, staging events and getting media attention, things like that. Yeah. I might be showing my misunderstanding of current, views around autism but they talk a lot about his self-identification as someone with autism and it just struck me as a little bit at odds with that mm, yeah gotta be careful with that kind of thing i suppose don't want to deny somebody's identity but um... we'll get into that uh, all that stuff and the claims and whatnot but how much of a defense that would be for the various stuff that he says I, i'm less compelled by but in any case here's an introduction to him from the hosts. Hi, we're back. We're back. Um, we have a very exciting guest. Yeah. Um, novelist, poet, writer, autism advocate, <laughs> nutritionist, uh, auto fiction pioneer, needs no introduction, yes. uh, Talon. Welcome to Red Scare. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is my favorite podcast that I've been on. Really? Chris, I have a question for you. How popular is Red Scare? Is, is it a big podcast? Yeah, yeah, it's very popular. I don't know where it's ranked, but very popular is the answer. Yes. Mm, okay. And can you not tell why? <laughs> We're such scintillating interactions, but I, it is focusing on delivery at the minute. But I don't think this reflects my age because I never, I never find this appealing, even when I was myself an edgy teenager. But like the... I'm so incredibly excited. This is amazing. He's unbelievable. And then, thank you. This podcast is my favorite. 
it just Jesus Christ. If I was at a party with these people, I would, I'd just be pounding back the shots. To yeah. Get out of these conversations. I think at least part of it is a difference in social milieu. That's it, though. I just want to make that clear. It's not just about age. It's about social, because I have been at parties like this. Well, Talon is 40, right? He's 40. He's the same age as me. He's the same, same age as me. I remember when I was 40 and I was a spring chicken of 40. Um, yeah, it's true. I wasn't, I didn't like this kind of stuff then. I previously talked about, Matt, how I went to a party in London from a friend who was working in the FX industry there. And it was a very hipsterish party in Shoreditch territory and that party almost made me want to kill myself <laughs> like just the escape the in the end conversations that people were having there I genuinely it was mental torture mm. and I've you know I've been to bad parties I've talked to you've talked to plenty of you know idiots or people in all walks of life even at good parties right but like this was just yeah. so something. And this is giving me flashbacks to that <laughs> event. Now you mention it, I, I have mixed in artistic circles too and gone to parties that were full of um, musos. Everyone had a band and with varying degrees of success. Um, I remember a party that was hosted by a poet. He was a poet and he had a little crowd of fans mm. around him. And he was an incredibly charming and charismatic and, and handsome guy but that was similar that's that's the similar vibe and you're right it's not my thing either so i guess we're just laying our cards on the table in terms of you know it's not just individuals there are different social groupings and i'm sure it's pretty intense down there on the lower east side of manhattan or wherever they're from yeah yeah i'm just a country chicken Simple country yeah, chicken yeah. from small town in Queensland, Australia. That's it. We don't do these kind of fancy <laughs> events. But, you know, I do think there is a parallel with the IDW, you know, sophisticated dinner get-togethers, which they're always talking about having these big conversations over dinner. I also don't go to those. So I, I'm not taking part in any of the whole intellectual social milieu. So, all right. Anyway, with that clear... There's something we need to get out of the way early because it's going to come up. You might have guessed it, but one part of being edgy is saying like edgy words and things which are supposed to be offensive. And that demonstrates that you're cool because you don't give a shit what normal restrictions are, man. Like you're too hip for that. So just two examples. Are you a mama's boy? Can you describe that? Mm -hmm. I mean, who are you closer with, your mom or your dad? My mom, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Totally. You identify more with your mother. I think also your dad's like not retarded and he probably can intuit that you and your mother have what feels like a conspiracy <laughs> together against him. Well, yeah. Retarded. You know, whoa, say the R word. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here, I just wanted to highlight that you might have thought that like that was the cutting edge of humor when South Park came to the fore, right? To say retarded or something like that, and it'd it be edgy. But no, anyway, <laughs> it's worth noticing. And another example is this one. Do you feel like being like the child of immigrants contributed at all to your perspective as an artist? It's kind of a, a gay and cliched question, but it also dawns on me that autism aside, having shame-based foreigner parents also gives you a sense of critical distance it's a gay question matt 
you know it's the words that used to be used offhand but now deliberately used to show that you're you know beyond yeah 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 yeah, yeah. transgressive that's the word you're looking for that's a word yeah yeah, yeah. it's transgressive it's hip to be square that's all right that's all right i like south park yeah if you make it a cornerstone of your personality less impressive but nonetheless i'm just saying it because you'll hear it come up and so there's two clips that's it and if that was the extent of it just to be clear i would just be like "Eh, okay you know whatever it's not that which makes the rest of the stuff that you're gonna hear like bad right that's just a symptom of the hipster edgy contrarian space but i i think one of the things is like if people focus on that that gives them an easy out to say that oh look people are just being triggered by sure you know that's that's what it's there for no i I wasn't i wasn't triggered i wasn't triggered well (laughs) bad luck you failed the triggers (laughs) (laughs) you're not going to get us that easily i'm just trying to figure out how to tell the difference between someone who's not neurotypical and someone who's just incredibly incredibly cool yeah line. yeah that's true so let's get into it so obviously this episode is going to be heavily focused on autism and there's various reasons for that Taolin has apparently been described as an autistic writer by various people or at least they, they claim that so here's him talking about this a little bit you're a very evocative writer and in spite or because of being very literal, which you've talked about and which you attribute to autism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You talked about, I, I forgot where, that you generally don't like and shy away from devices like metaphor or idioms or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's like an autistic trait? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I I have two styles. One of them is the one you're describing. It's really literal, and it just describes concrete details Mm -hmm. and also, like, some thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And that one's the one that everyone associates me with, so they think I, like, write really simply. Uh But I also write in longer sentences with a lot of metaphors and stuff like I did in my book Taipei Mm -hmm. but I feel like both of them are autistic literary styles Mm -hmm. like with the long sentences I'll use like really weird autistic similes scintillating Mm. so he uses weird similes and he describes things in a factual way because of you know his autistic tendencies and you might at this point be curious is he autistic and just to answer that he explains but we do have a lot of questions about autism have you ever been formally diagnosed as autistic no so you just suspect that you're autistic yeah, yeah. Okay. I've self-diagnosed. Okay. And yeah. I've taken tests. Mm-hmm. I'm... S- like, I took this test pretending I was in high school or college, and I scored 39, and above 31 indicates... Oh, I've clean. taken this test, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you said you retook it from your perspective today and you scored 28 so Mm -hmm. when you say you were pretending that you were in high school or college what does that mean i just sat there thinking like 
story. It's I just noisy. sat there thinking, like, I'm in, what was it like when I was in 11th grade and, like, mm-hmm. a freshman in college? And I've written about it so much, I feel like I can just remember it. And I just filled mm-hmm. out the test. Okay. I was trying to think of the particular vibe that's being portrayed here. And it reminded me of, like, you know those directors, uh, like Andy Warhol or Jim Jamush? That they both, like, hammed it up on purpose. And I, I, Jim Jamush did a, a cameo in, in a funny sort of New York comedy. It was about a, I forget what it was called. It was a guy as a, he was like a, private detective mm. there was the scene where jim jamush is having this surreal conversation with him while he's riding around on a little bicycle honking a little horn <laughs> and it's just so pretentious and artsy and all at the same time yeah i feel like that's the vibe that talent's going for for me the part that strikes me here matt is cutting through all of that self-diagnosed with autism on the basis of taking a test and thinking back to when you were younger and that you would score higher at the time than you would now. Now, I'm not going to argue that autism is diagnosed on the spectrum, right? Autism spectrum disorder exists. So it is quite possible that somebody doesn't reach clinically diagnosable levels, but they're somewhere on the spectrum. But just that whole approach if you were really this focused on the topic and concerned about it, why wouldn't you just go? see like a qualified psychiatrist or psychologist and get a diagnosis. And actually, if you wanted a diagnosis, I think the way that you choose to answer questions on the test is not that hard to work out. So it's, but it just speaks to that, that like, that's what all of this is based on is self-diagnosis and self-research and all the things that you're going to hear is all from Tao Lin's own autodidactic approach to research. Yeah, I think the point is he's he's kind of autistic, but ironically. Yeah. Kind of he is, but he isn't. He's, you know, um, don't take it seriously, but don't not take it seriously. It's another one of the influences on his style. And I guess it's part of the gestalt that makes him pretty fascinating and interesting. To some people. Yes. So uh, here's him talking about, you know, definitions of autism a bit more. The CDC's definition of it. No, the DSM-5's definition of it is just that you have deficits in social interaction and communication mm-hmm. and just anything social. And then you also have repetitive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And then a third thing that these things cause, quote, significant impairment in uh-huh. your functioning so it's just those three things. Okay. So it's not like if you go to a doctor, there's no biological test or genetic test for it. Right. You mentioned all. that unlike something like Down syndrome or other forms of retardation, which can be localized to like a single chromosome or something. Mm-hmm. I feel mad that this is a little bit common. Actually, it reminds me of some of the stuff uh, when I used to read works about mental health denialism, that whole, you know, anti-psychiatry movement and there's general critiques that you can have of the dsmv5 and the history of psychiatry and all that kind of thing but whenever diagnoses are presented like this it tends to be saying you know like the diagnostic criteria is so loose so broad that basically it's very easy to fit yourself into these criteria if you want right like what does it mean to be impaired what does it mean repetitive behaviors and stuff but actually although there could be issues with overdiagnosis. I think in general, a good psychiatrist and whatnot will not 
hand out a diagnosis without, you know, significant evidence. And it isn't just that you read the checklist online and then that's it, right? Like all of the things, if you read it, will say that this requires proper extended evaluation. So this reminds me a bit of like going, you know, WebMDing your symptoms and being like, oh, yes, yes, I've got that. So I, I must have some rare exotic disease. And I, of course, autism is not that rare compared to other disorders, but it's just the approach, you know, it's very vibe based like yeah this applies because there there may be issues with clinical diagnosis over diagnosis or under diagnosis but certainly those pale in comparison to self-diagnosis so so i'm not going to attempt a a casual diagnosis but you know i've met a few people uh, on the spectrum in real life i'm related to some of them some people have accused me of being somewhere along the spectrum but that doesn't matter because i'm not a clinician either then you'll be interested to hear their discussions about where the origins of autism lie because you might not be a clinician matt but taolin has done research they found like the exact gene or whatever Mm -hmm. but with autism they found like 500 to a thousand different genes that are associated with it Mm -hmm. and even though they found that many they still think they just still view it as genetic right and you and your point like basically the TLDR from what I understand is that all these modern chemicals and technologies are what's making us ill and the genetic explanation is kind of a scapegoat that diverts away from the environmental factors. Mm-hmm, is that definitely, correct? yeah. Okay, so it's the it's the technology and the contaminants in the, the modern world that is making us... Environmental factors, Matt, yep. and the kind of skepticism around genetic factors there is a thing that will be recurrent and in this podcast whenever they talked about topics whenever i was preparing for this episode i went and did a little bit of research i did my own research right but i actually know how to locate meta-analyses and and studies and and to put them in general context of qualities of studies and From my research and background information on this, I think the general position is there is a genetic contribution. The percentage is debatable, but it's not insignificant. Um, And that there are potential environmental factors, but almost all of the ones that Tao Lin will go on to discuss are not strongly supported by evidence. There's weak studies or, you know, they're associated with anti-vaccine claims or this kind of thing. And some of the better more established ones related to environment during early pregnancy and early stages of life and so on are not so strongly focused on, right? Except for the kind of chemicals in the environment, electromagnetic waves, ingredients and vaccines, all this kind of stuff. So it's, Mm. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Primarily genetic and and also important to remember when we talk about environmental factors, we're not just talking about like the society that we live in and no. you know too much screen time. We're talking about exposure to stuff during pregnancy, yeah, yeah, or medicines and things like that, birth complications and so on. Right, those are the things that are actually relatively strongly supported, but that's not what they're going to fix it on. And part of the issue is when you say exposure to chemicals in early stages of life or whatever. The kind of chemicals that they're going to talk about are not the ones that have strong evidence supporting them. So, yeah, it's one of those things where like environment gets mixed in with all types of things. But if you imagine by environment, they're primarily talking about, you know, 
the same kind of toxins that most of your health and wellness influencers will identify, thimerosal, these kind of things, right? Yeah, that's what's going to come up. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a little bit more about autism as a identity category and general stupidity about the causes of autism. Now that there's this like push for neurodiversity as like an identity category, mm -hmm. uh, you say also in your essay that like we're, they're sort of trying to destigmatize neurodivergency and in, in that way also failing to do the research necessary to actually attribute it to the certain environmental or chemical causes that... Mm -hmm. But first of all, like autism gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. It's very broadly applied. Um, obviously, people are becoming more autistic clinically. But I also feel like a lot of normative behaviors now qualify sort of as like our times are becoming increasingly autistic and everyone. So everyone is sort of on the spectrum. Do you, mm -hmm, do you think mm -hmm. that like, for instance being online makes you more autistic or do autistic people gravitate toward being online both both of those i feel like it's not just environmental toxins but but just literally everything mm -hmm. like even how you're raised right or your experiences that's extremely vague and broad isn't it i mean one thing <laughs> to say that being online makes you more autistic or yeah. just everything, all your experiences, then you're talking in such broad terms and you must be referring to some concept of autism that is just so broad as to be entirely meaningless, surely. Dasha does make the point there about there being a lot of claims about behavior being autistic or people being autistic, right? It's kind of trendy especially in Silicon Valley kind of spaces. But I think also in these artistic and creative spaces too, you know, I was mentioning these, you know, hip directors and you could think of names of artists and authors and stuff like that who have a, a brand and a, a bit like the Silicon Valley people, it kind of makes sense to have that brand where you're like in touch with the infinite, you know, you're somehow special, your insights are better, they're more unique. And when you're building a brand to to become well-known as an artist of some kind, I could see an incentive to lean into that. So it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that they bring that up <laughs> with Tao Lin, who, you know, arguably could be leaning into it for the same reasons. Yes, it is slightly ironic. We don't need more irony in this show, Chris. There's already, <laughs> yeah. They're already supplying enough. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't do it. I would take it as an underhand dig because they did say at the start that they have some questions about his claims about autism and stuff as well. So I think there is an element of that there, but yeah. the way that it's used here, like here's another example of it just being like used as a very broad term and diagnoses being thrown around casually. Yeah, I feel like the increase in autism is must be connected to the increase in autofiction. If there is an increase in autofiction, I don't know if there has been. But just it seems like mm. autistic people... Do you think Joan Didion was autistic? Sorry, don't I have. <laughs> A little, yeah. Something was Definitely. up with her, yeah. yeah. So Talin's an autofictional writer, right? Uh -huh. That's his genre. It's a genre of literature that combines elements of autobiography and fiction. And he was saying that that fictional style is connected to the rise of autism. Yeah, I think his link is autistic people being fixated on topics and linking things, seeing things from their perspective that, you know, having difficulties with theory of mind stuff means that that would be an appealing 
genre of literature for them. But the logic there as well, Matt, is I think the rise of this, if there has been a rise in this, like you would want the first thing, right? You'd want to establish that if you want to make the claim that this is because autism is becoming more common, so now this is becoming a more popular genre of, of fiction, you'd first want to know that that is the case. And also I think like people writing from their autobiographical perspective and disguising as fiction, it's not entirely a new genre of fiction that I've never heard of before. I've heard of plenty of waves that sound very familiar to this and like previous generations. So yeah. 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 Marcel Proust, Le Rocher de Tonspodu. Exactly. All of that, Matt. Yeah. All of that. And uh, and you can hear the same kind of loose reasoning when they're talking about autism and testosterone. Here's an example. That's interesting because I have, I have a question about autism, which com there's some common sort of perceptions about it that it's also due to an excess of testosterone which is why most autists are male uh -huh. and that it's I've someone described it to me as um, like being excessively male brained and thus lacking kind of the more feminine instincts for like empathizing and like graciousness. Um, I'm sure that's part of it. Testosterone levels. I hadn't heard of it being too high though. People. Or maybe low, or some imbalance. Mm -hmm. I feel like low, probably. Or free, because there's a difference. A lot between... of autists are high T. Yeah, but there's like the the idea of like free testosterone in your blood, which I don't fully oh, I follow bet. or understand. <laughs> but I, I don't know, maybe that's the thread. But maybe a bit of free speculation there, Chris. Yeah. So th they've read stuff about the extreme male brain theory and testosterone. Yes. Hyman Baron Cohen. Yeah, and I think it is true, right, that uh, autism is much more prevalent in males than females, right? Much more prevalent amongst males than females. Questions about, you know, is part of that to do with the way that it presents in males being more readily diagnosable, but also the evidence around this being linked to testosterone levels. And I believe it's particularly higher levels of prenatal testosterone, so mm -hmm. like in the amniotic yeah. Fluid. fluid yeah so it's not that autistic people have higher levels of testosterone it's that when they were gestating they, they could have been high level higher levels of testosterone in the amniotic fluid so a bit different right but you know there are various versions of the theory and whatnot but the general thing i would say is that it doesn't have strong evidence currently and mm -hmm. more this clip highlights and we'll see it in other clips the way that they approach these kind of topics in some respect matt this is the way a lot of people approach this kind of topic so Tao Lin has apparently been you know quite focused on this issue but when you hear the way he talks about studies or the way that you know he finds what Dasha and Anna say you know yeah yeah that's right it's kind of like that whatever like it's just very very superficial and vibe yeah based I heard once from a friend yeah my friends saw that and yeah it's basically joe rogan epistemology yeah it's something you read once and you vaguely remember and you know it's a theory the evidence for it is pretty weak and they've kind of not even remembered it quite right anyway <laughs> so yeah so this gets tied in this is something that's going to come up again later but in a lot of these podcasts that we cover matt the different types of figures that we cover one recurrent pattern that you see in across a diverse range is this 
this kind of fascination with esoteric and the presentation of the you know noble savage the return to the way that humans are supposed to live and this kind of naturalistic is good philosophy right you see that crop up a lot you know the indigenous peoples have knowledge that is closer to the ideal form that humans should live this kind of thing and Taolin links this in to stuff to do with autism i liked what you're talking about earlier about how you think everyone's on a spectrum that's <laughs> yeah. what i think like definitely now compared to our pre-agricultural ancestors mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everyone now is on the spectrum i think we're because on some kind of spectrum uh-huh we're on all the spectrum yeah. Yeah. just autistic just suicidal i'm feeble-minded myself <laughs> unstable yeah. yeah yeah definitely it's intersectional because that one artist george catlin hmm. in the 1800s he visited two million native americans mm -hmm. and south american natives and he didn't meet one he called it idiot or lunatic quote mm -hmm. lunatic out of two million people and he said he heard of three or four you see the reference that it's intersectional actually i know that's kind of just a flippant comment but i do think that is the horseshoe thing coming in that they are fluent in that way of thinking you know the oh yes postmodern yeah. and oh yeah and and if you think back to some of those other clips you played there chris they're very much au fait with the very sophisticated kind of discourse language that you normally would associate with super ultra progressive people yeah yeah but there's a horseshoe going on where the levels of irony and skepticism <laughs> and so on has reached such a point that there's a bit of a horseshoe at play. But yeah, it was interesting, his theory, that we're all autistic now to some degree or another. The modern world has made us this way. And the proof of this is some first-hand account of some early pioneer who met a lot of Native Americans and didn't meet many, was it idiots is the word that he used? But Lunatics anyway, and it, idiots. Yeah, so that's strong evidence. Actually, Matt, I went and looked up about this guy. Because of course you did, Catherine. yes. Yeah, Thank because you, I did. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I do. So he's an interesting character because he was somebody who went around and produced a whole bunch of portraits of indigenous American people, Native Americans, and on the one hand presented them in an overall positive light and kind of documenting that they're a very varied collection of different people and, you know, that they have these traditions which are beautiful and they take care of landscapes and all this kind of thing but it's very much also associated with the kind of noble savage presentation from that period right and it's very much regarding them as the repository of wisdom that can cure the ills of the western mind which is a very common motif yeah and i'm sure chris sorry this is an aside but i'm sure like i know it's it's easy to mock that right people coming from the sort of early industrial age looking at people living in more natural environments moving around i, I can imagine I, mean, I don't know for sure but i can imagine them making valid comparisons of of people being you know physically fitter and seemingly more relaxed and stuff like that compared to the sort of 
people in some industrial town in the Midwest, you know, going off to the factory and that. I mean, there is that, right? You can focus on that aspect, but a lot of it is just exoticism. And I absolutely would not trust his assessment of how many people of course. were suffering of course. from mental illness <laughs> in the, the, you know, and, and there's a lot about them having kind of special breathing techniques, which allow them, you know, to live healthier lives and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's very much the exact same as the Theosophists, just like a different target. Sure. But Tao Lin treats it as, well, we can take his account as very accurate because, sure. and that shows that pre-agricultural societies just didn't have significant levels of autism or, you know, mental illnesses associated with that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's the past, Matt. What about the future? Has some projections about the future. I wanted to ask you about this quote from your essay um, where, if I can find it, um, the United States, which is of 2011, had the highest first day in infant death rate in the industrialized world might succumb to autism, um, becoming a cautionary example for other countries. The autism rate here has doubled on average of every five years since 1970. At this rate, the majority of American boys will be autistic by 2036, and by around 2045, most children here will be nonverbal. Are you being sarcastic or facetious, or do you think that's actually true? The nonverbal thing? Yeah. I calculated it. That's in- yeah. A lot of times, like, I, I calculated it. Yeah, it's true. Okay. I mean... I buy it. Yeah, I said it's, like, on pace to do that. Mm-hmm. Unless, if it well, does- is there any, there's no way to remedy it? And there is a- the lonely causing debility is our environment. Yeah. Okay. So the truth in that there, Chris, is that rates of diagnosis of autism in the US and to some degree elsewhere have been increasing a lot over recent decades, haven't they? That's right. But what he's doing there, very scientifically, Dowlin is extrapolating out, assuming that there will be a consistent increase from a growth, right? Like he's, he's projecting an exponential increase so by the same thing you could look at the production of some new type of cheese or some popular sweet and say look the production of prime drink is doubling year on year for you know the past five years or whatever it's been out and if this continues by the year 2050 the earth will just be comprised solely of prime drinks you know you can't do that and also, I don't trust his calculations. No. Or... Okay. But he did say it was an extrapolation. It was a forecast when they when they pushed him on it. You know, he, he calculated it several times, but he did slip in there that he was extrapolating. Right. But that's the thing, Matt. Really, the whole, the US is going to be nonverbal by the mid-2000s. I know they're expressing their, like, skepticism over that claim as well. But I do feel that shows quite how seriously you should take yeah. some of the other claims made by Taolin. Of course, of course. I mean, he makes several mistakes. I mean, the least of which probably is the extrapolation because you could say, give him the benefit of the doubt and says he, he knows that he's just saying at present rates. But I guess what he's ignoring is that he's assuming that the increased rates of diagnosis are entirely due to an increased underlying prevalence of autistic symptomatology in the population, where I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that a lot of the increase would be due to broader diagnostic criteria. Increased attention to it and awareness of the issue. Yes, yeah. this is part of the problem because there's 
an association where people are like, look, the developed societies, which are, you know, wealthy and have modern medicine, that's where you're seeing these increase in autism. Yeah, but that's right. If you're living in the 1800s in London, you would get a diagnosis of any mental condition if you were literally taking off all your clothes and running down the street, attacking people, right? Yeah. Then they'll drag you off, throw you in a dungeon, <laughs> give you some diagnosis. But barring that, you know, people just, there wasn't the awareness and, you know, people had bigger fish to fry in terms of their problems, in terms of whether or not somebody was showing symptoms of autism. I mean, look, it's certainly possible that there are some environmental features at play. Who knows? Could be microplastics, whatever. But, you know, other things like people having children later in life, right? It could be older parental age, things like that could be going on. All of those things obviously do not extrapolate. From what I could see of looking at the reviews about the evidence, one of the strongest supported predictors is pregnancy in older age, right? But as a result, <laughs> there's no time spent on that in this particular discussion. And you heard there at the end, you know, that Talon said there is a way to reverse this dystopic future. And it comes from Catlin. He references, you know, what Catlin showed from the indigenous Americans was that if you just treat it correctly, it doesn't manifest. You, you don't find anybody with autism. So here is a little bit of that discussion. Catlin, you mentioned when he was in the field, like embedded with the Native Americans, often came across the theory that the reason that there were less like deaf, dumb and mute and insane people in their population is because they like called, like killed off the feeble-minded feeble ones. minded <clears throat> ones at first yeah and you say that's that's actually not the case and he in fact discovered that when those rare instances did occur those people were treated with dignity and almost elevated to the level of deities because they were considered to be like a special sign from god because mm -hmm. they were so rare yeah and and i'm sure they did function that way as special things that would just they would have a different perspective than anyone else mm -hmm. and and they would figure out a way to use that to benefit the tribe catlin said the general thing is that the indigenous Americans, Native Americans treated people with mental illnesses like deities, elevated them and recognized they had special insights. And, you know, that is what allowed people to flourish. And yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the key thing here. Like the whys and wherefores of autism are a little bit beside the point. It's um, we're going to be talking about some different topics soon, but the general the general vibe and the generally intuitively attractive point that is being made is that modern society sucks and is all making us all sick and we need to get back in touch with nature right yes that's right and if you want a little bit more on the dystopic future that we're heading towards sure so what you're saying basically is our society will be a population of extreme autists administered by people on the spectrum who are like more or less functional. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that could be good. That's like, kind of beautiful. Well, yeah. yeah. It is. Well, because you end this essay on a very beautiful and hopeful note. Um, mm -hmm. 
the more autistic among us, the more injured and excluded by civilization, blessed and cursed with reclusion and mental independence, bent toward accuracy in numbers and language, would lead society in the gradual rewarding work of healing. Do you feel like it's going to be the functionally autistic who rescue and heal our broken civilization? Yeah, if you hear the little quote that she wrote out from his essay, you can see that this is someone who's who's a kind of an artist, right? He's got away with words. He wrote some very, very nice prose there, but it's not well-founded scientifically. I'm, I'm sure it's a beautiful article, though. Yeah, we will get off the autism topic soon, Matt, but there's just, Good. there were so many, so many references to it that I, I can't let some of them go past. So, you know, if you think we're being a little bit too cruel about that, maybe Kowlin just does have good insights to this. And, you know, he might be off with some of his remarks and whatnot, but, you know, generally he's approaching this correctly. Listen to this. Oh, interesting. Been working on that and taking care of my cats. <laughs> nice. One of my cats is autistic. How so? A lot autistic compared to the other one. He's really. He moves really slow, and he doesn't touch you. Like, the other cats will rub against me mm -hmm. a lot. This one doesn't, and he has he throws up a lot. <laughs> it's not a joke, right? They're laughing, <laughs> but he is diagnosing his cat as having autism because it's not affectionate enough. That's all ticks, right? <laughs> like... He's describing a cat then. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's not as friendly as the other cats. Ergo, it's an autistic cat. And it's not just him that does this kind of thing. So here's another classic of the genre. That Chinese is kind of an autistic language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, that um you speak to them in Chinese, I assume. Mm-hmm. With some words in English, yeah. But so that the dialogue in Leave Society is also like translated. And mm -hmm. I think it's like, well, also because you're writing it, there's like a literalness. Uh -huh. But my impression of Chinese in, in general also is that it's very Russian. It's not the case with Russians, a very like uh, kind of complicated and like Baroque and kind of, yeah, it has many like, yeah, yeah like. Yeah, Chinese Emo is It's really... a very emotional language with Chinese. Is, yeah, sorry. Mm. Go ahead. Yeah, Chinese is really terse. Like, mm. it'll often be less words in Chinese. Uh -huh. And I think Chinese people in America come off as very <clears throat> terse and autistic-coded. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Chinese people come across as autistic coded. I think people with a background in, in the humanities, with a liberal arts degree, they should just stay away from topics like autism. They should keep talking about Marcel Proust. Famously non-poetic language Chinese, Matt. That's, you know, not going into like dialects or what specifically they're referencing there. But the notion that because compared to European or Russian, the language structure in Chinese can sometimes seem bare bones. Yeah. I get that there is a lot of poetry in China. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, I know. I know that like, because Chinese people are not displaying the responses assumed by European standards, ergo, that means there's something out. Well, in fairness, Chris, you did say autistic coded. So Yeah. You know, all right. Smiley. Yes. And there is a giggle. It's ironic, Ma. It's just a joke, but is it? But the, the point I got is that this is the artistic literary style where you play with ideas and you 
you, you know, you cross the streams and you combine this observation with that observation and it can all be very nice. It's just, but you and I are looking at it through the lens of, <laughs> is this factually accurate? Is this, is this grounded in any kind of evidence? And the answer is always no, which is why I think they should stay away from topics like autism. Yes, and I agree. I mean, it is like that, but it leads to stuff like this. But, and I, I don't think this is contradicting what you're saying, but it's kind of illustrating why... <laughs> I have such a problem with it. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. And East Asians seem more autistic, mm -hmm. just overall. Yeah. Like when I go to Taiwan, like everyone seems autistic. Mm -hmm. Like they say, mm, a lot as mm -hmm. a response. And which... you said that they smile when they're placed in an uncomfortable or unflattering social situation. Which comes off weird to Westerners mm -hmm. because, like, why are you, why are you laughing when I kind of do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I feel like they're pretty quiet. He was raised in America, by the way, Matt. This is important context, but so because he goes to East Asia and finds people quiet, and the theory that they just raised about Chinese being an autistic language, like it is all playing with ideas and this kind of thing, but also it's incredibly myopic, incredibly myopic. Like they even said there, oh, comes off to Westerners as like a bit weird, right? But that doesn't mean it's autism, right? It's a different thing. It's just that there's other cultures in the world that have different social behaviors and responses. And oh, but they say, hmm which is like non-responsive. Yeah, they say, mm, rather than, yeah. So, yeah, I know, it's vapid. All the observations I heard were all vapid. Last one, Matt. Last one for the autism one. Last one, and it's, uh, again, it's a concrete claim. A very concrete claim. When people think of autists, they hmm. think, A, of socially awkward people, and B, of people who are geniuses. But a lot of autistic people actually have pretty limited mental capacity. There's some middling... Yeah. yeah, there's like, it's like 30% have IQs lower than 70. They're retarded. Wow. That's like, like us for real. <laughs> and the average lifespan of autistic people is only 36.2 years. Wow. That's insane. Okay. So what, what were the concrete claims you're referring to? The average lifespan... I mean, it's a spectrum, so I suspect any of these statistics, whether it's IQ, lifespan, or whatever, can only apply to some threshold of severity that you put people across. So he said the life expectancy was 36 yeah. years. This is a thing which you actually see cited across a bunch of things. But again, Matt, a single search on Google Scholar, you can actually find a paper from The Lancet this year, estimating life expectancy and years of life lost for autistic people in the UK, a match cohort story, and blah, blah, blah. Studies on premature mortality in autistic people have often been misinterpreted, right? So they attempt to look, and in contrast to the dramatic claims made by Tao Lin, they find that people diagnosed with autism and intellectual disability had 2.83 times the mortality rate, reduction in life expectancy, uh, 6.14 years 
or people with autism and intellectual disability, 7.28 years compared to the yeah. average, right? So slightly... You know, I assume this is people that actually meet clinical criteria for the disorder, not, not for people that are somewhere along the spectrum, which is what they've been talking about. He may have been talking about people with severe autism at that particular point, but mm -hmm. even then, this is one of the things that you can check, right? And yeah. If you spent an hour checking, you would see that those claims are based on, you know, very flimsy research and they're often cited in the kind of yeah. anti-vaccine general autism discourse space. But it's not hard to find out that, yeah. yes, while there is, of course, a expected greater susceptibility to injuries or, or just things that will reduce your lifespan whenever you have autism or, or related disabilities. If it were something where your lifespan was reduced from 36 and the average lifespan, you know, in a developed country, 70 or 80. And if most of the people in the society in 2045 were going to be nonverbal, right? So lifespan also <laughs> going down, presumably, yeah. right? I get the general gist of what you're saying, Chris. I mean, you can take pretty much any of the statements made by Talin and there's a theme, which is that they all are all drawn from a very superficial vibe from low quality discourse out there and aren't actually accurate when you check with the literature. And this is someone who's done a deep dive on it. Right. He's written essays about it. Written articles, books around the topic. So yeah, this is what it looks like when an arts and humanities poet person does a deep dive of the topic. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, arts and humanities people. We're taking Tal in and whatever applies to him. No, it's not all of you. that's not fair. When they do a dive on a scientific topic, it often ends up like this it, it depends on the person that's not fair some of them do a good job everyone stick to your art galleries stick to your book signings you know just just make your comments on literature and art stay away from the real world it's not for you yeah sorry sorry <laughs> that was too broad that was unfair i take it back my arts and humanities brothers and sisters i'm i'm sorry for besmirching you but you understand why i'm a little bit frustrated <laughs> from this material and if you thought it was just related to autism because of this guest then that's very specific and we're picking a bit too much let's go to a completely different topic oh what could that be i don't know <laughs> we got to read the real dr fauci to find out mm-hmm I'm sure he gets into all those numbers. I mean, I bet a ton. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but he bought like a lot of stock and then like after selling it, he came out and said like the vaccine is not that effective and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we were all, I mean, I regret getting it. Did you get the vax? I'm no, I didn't get it. Good for you. Oh, thank you. I mean, I'm, I don't feel any different. Good for you, Matt. Yep. So, Fauci, what a bastard, eh, Chris? Didn't get the vaccine? Good. Lucky you. Smart decision. That comes towards the end of the podcast. Let's jump back in time to them introducing this topic. And there's a bit of a connection to the, the previous topic, but I'm sorry. Belief <laughs> in science, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the way they get you there is when you start really digging into that kind of stuff, it is not only officially but socially censured because you are made to feel like a weird tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist and therefore like lame and uncool and socially unacceptable nobody mm -hmm. wants that. 
that's how liberals will be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's been isolating. We spoke about this before, actually. Yeah. I have? Me and you. I think you asked me because of... Mm, about working in like the entertainment industry mm -hmm. and when they were rolling out the mm -hmm. COVID vaccines there was a totally like homogenous culture uh -huh. where ever all of my colleagues were just being like which vaccine are you gonna get you know <laughs> and like why haven't you done it yet yeah. you know and you're like <laughs> like sweating because you don't want to get into it but you even have and I don't yeah. even know the facts. I just right. have like doubts. Yeah, any any natural <laughs> misgiving I, um, that you may have is yeah. is billed as like a nefarious dogma, mm -hmm. like merely for asking questions. But <clears throat> as you mentioned, the autistic have a powerful upper hand in grappling with these issues because they're less um, socially conformist. Mm -hmm. And they have, they can know so many facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There you go, Chris. All of those squares out there, all conformists, they're all getting the vaccine and they're asking, why aren't you vaccinated? It's like, oh my God. Yeah. So cringe. And Taolin correctly notes that in liberal circles, being anti-vaccine is seen as a negative thing. It's not so negative in conservative. In fact, it's not edgy or unusual. It's mm. mainstream. In some respects, it's necessary. Yeah. You're, if they want to do a podcast about how good 5G is, that would be edgy for their audience. I think that's an interesting aspect to them. Like this is where when you get so edgy and so ironic and so sophisticated in scare quotes, at some point that takes you to this horseshoe part of the political spectrum where you can do sort of right-wingy conspiratorial anti-authoritarian stuff but it's it's all done in a in a very artsy manhattan liberal arts graduate kind of way this is an interesting example of a broader thing that we've seen a lot yeah though i guess the point i would make here is that when you hear the references that they make they'll talk in some of the other clips about glenn greenwald joe rogan it's not a random assortment dispersed across the political spectrum. It's all from a very predictable right-wing griftosphere. Like, and uh, I can play one clip that kind of highlights the kind of thing I'm talking about. So listen to this. But one thing that is interesting is that Trump has tweeted like 30 times about the connection between vaccines and autism. Uh-huh. Which just made me trust and admire him a lot. Uh -huh. Like, why would you say something that's going to alienate, like, almost everyone? Right. And keep saying it. And just from my research on it, it, it seems true. Well, what did you find uh, in through your research? Have you read the real, the real Dr. Fauci by RFK Jr.? No. It seems amazing. It though. seems like you're beat. <laughs> it's seems very well researched and very thin margins it's like jam-packed with information it's amazing he can write books like that well that's why i also kind of trust rfk jr because mm -hmm. he's been a very vocal mm -hmm. um vaccine truther mm -hmm. yeah very. for a long time which has like certainly done him no favors yeah that's why you can trust 
RFK Jr. because he's been such a vocal anti-vaccine advocate. Yeah, and he wrote a book with thin margins. It's packed with facts. It's connected to this dark enlightenment sort of thing as well, isn't it? Like it's this like a very sophisticated take on the reactionary vibe, right? Very sophisticated. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I'm using the heavy scare quotes to describe. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, heavy, heavy scare quotes. But like some of those names on that list were talking about before, Elizabeth Brunig, Tulsi Gabbard, Glenn Greenwald, Steve Bannon, Slavov Zizek, he's a bit of an exception, but also Alex Jones, Curtis Yavin. Like these, these are the former guests on the Red Scare. So as you say, I, I'm agreeing with you. It is a new kind of postmodern way to be right-wing reactionary, but it's also super ironic and sophisticated in scare quotes. And you can hear like the vibe-based nature for it in a whole bunch of things and i think it's anna talking about candace owens but but just listen to the way she assesses her i had this thought with candace owens who a lot of people don't like i'm not like a huge candace owens stan or anything like that but one of the redeeming qualities that she has is that in spite of being like a right-wing ideologue she never really seems angry or bitter even though she plays that part like she seems like on the whole like a pretty like cheerful person she feels very polished yeah polished and cheerful yeah that's why you know she's good isn't that nice that's sort of reflection like who gives a <laughs> you know that's the mistake that so many people make is like they assume people that are ideologues or conspiracy theorists have to be like horrific people to be around. Yeah, like they've got to have bad BO, they've got to be hairy. Yeah. What does it matter that she's cheerfully an ideologue? Who cares? That's right. She was loudly demanding that the US Marine Corps invade Australia. It doesn't really matter if she her nails are done really well and she wears snappy outfits. <laughs> that she's insane. Come on. Yeah. To give some credence to your approach though, Matt, you do hear Dasha talk about her previous politics, right? So listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> so when you started, you were a Bernie Sanders supporter? I was a Bernie crat, yeah. What were you? Like a nothing burger. I mean, I was always mm. low-key. I, I don't want to say, I'm not a conservative. You're not a in conservative. Any shape or form. Yeah. But I've always been like kind of low-key right-wing because my my mom is very liberal in a way that doesn't map onto the normal American coordinates. And my dad was always very right wing mm. in his own special way. And I, I never really felt the urge to rebel against him. My parents are kind of libtards. They're Gen Xers. Mm. And I was pretty able, like I like really was not interested in politics. And then I liked Bernie Sanders and I was really poor. Mm -hmm. And so whatever, democratic socialism <laughs> seemed Were like you? intriguing to me because I was like, oh, I could have a safety net. My life could be less precarious. What does that say about it, Chris? I mean, you described it as vapid a while ago. And um, is there anything more to say about it apart from that? The point here is that people have drawn this parallel before to say that Bernie supporters, some of them went on to support like figures like Trump and how, how could they jump from a democratic socialist candidate to a right-wing populist? And this is how, this is how you do it. You go on vibes on like being counterculture and Anna's point there that, you know, she's conservative, but she's not like a normal 
conservative. She's like a special category. And uh, Dash is like, you know, not an standard, just liberal person. Her thing was being much more nonchalant. But like, yeah, they both want to say we're not just the standard. No, no, of course. Like, I get it in the sense of figuring out where they are in terms of what they're reacting against and what they feel is hip and cool and whatever. And, you know, it, it says in what's written about it that they're reacting against things like the Me Too movement or woke consumerism where you, you know, ethical this and that or call out culture or cancel culture or whatever. And I can see how they can look at their parents or Gen Xs and normies and go, well, that stuff is not cool and they're having their own reaction against it so i I can sort of understand the internal logic for them i have two clips that speak to that so one is just like a straight up standard thing which comes up in all this is the denial that you are conservative like trigonometry dean of rubin until very late in his trajectory and tim pool all of them not conservatives are not conservatives, regardless of how many conservative points they raise. I wanted to ask you too how you changed away from being a liberal, <clears throat> each of you. Getting older and making more money <laughs> for me. Nothing will make you conservative, like <laughs> <laughs> having something to lose. Yeah, I think. But I still am. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm not a liberal. Actually. Yeah, I don't. I don't. On one hand, I don't I'm think definitely I not a conservative, a liberal. But on the other hand, I still am a liberal <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what I would say about myself too. Sorry, Taolin, if your big political hard-ons are for Trump and RFK Jr., maybe you're not actually as liberal as you imagine mm -hmm. yourself to be. It's clear that conservative is still uncool, right? There's still like an yeah. uncool association. So I'm not, a, I'm not a conservative, like I'm not on the hip, right? And then when it comes to that point about what you were saying about the potential association, negative connotations with it, just listen to this. Yeah, how do you identify politically? Yeah. I don't think I've ever identified with any party. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And also, I think it's very hard to be an artist and be a conservative. Hmm. Really? Like a true what conservative, yes, like, not like a right-wing person, but an actual mm -hmm. like kind of um, old classic style mm -hmm. conservative. Interesting. The point is that conservatism, classic conservatism, old style, you can't even be an artist and be a conservative, right? Yeah. They recognize a tension there, so they have to be not that. I guess my point is, Chris, is they are not that. Like, I think they're accurately describing themselves, right? Like, I think that the political landscape in the USA particularly, but other places as well to some degree, is changing, where those old school conservatives are still around, you know, the religious ones, the ones that believe in traditional family values, people, they don't talk like this. But then there's, there is a new kind of, just like there's probably a new kind of ways of being a progressive from the olden days, there are new ways of being whatever they are. It's kind of reactionary, it's kind of conservative, but it's also like into this sort of natural health and getting away from the modern world, you know, not believing in anything the authorities say, you know, Anthony Fauci has got to be lying about things. But that's all conspirituality, right? Yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's slightly different from the stodgy old conservatism. Oh, yeah, it is. 
but it doesn't seem to me like unclear about where the political lean of it is. I get that it's perfectly understandable to me that given the heuristics that they're applying, this like kind of very vibe-based reasoning, that they could fall into yeah. a left-wing populist, right? If it was the right one. But the current position and where they've been since they've emerged on the scene is very firmly ensconced in the kind of reactionary right, dark enlightenment. Like there's no real mystery about Kurdish Yarvin, whether he's right or left, right? He is a reactionary right wing person and people that they like, the things that they promote, they're not that at all surprising. It's Trump. It's RFK Jr., it's yeah. Candace Owens, it's not left-wing bomb throwers or that kind of person, right? Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just saying that the political landscape is evolving. So these terms, left and right, reactionary or progressive or whatever, they are relative terms that describe the current landscape. And it just doesn't mean the same thing whether you're talking about the left or the right as it did 50 years ago or even 30 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, so two clips on this, then we'll get back to the, the vaccine. I know you're you're itching, but the, uh, yeah. So on the vibe-based politic, how is this? Seeing like that clip of Bernie Sanders that was circulating on the internet like a week ago, of him addressing like the Israel-Palestine conflict. Like he is like at the end of the day, kind of no frills and plain spoken, and that's his appeal. Like he's he's to me is not a loathsome character, even though he's. <clears throat> I feel been... betrayed by him. Sure. Yeah. And that made me maybe sort of reactionary or at least I only became political because of Bernie Sanders because I liked him Mm -hmm. and then I became disillusioned it's a it's class it's sort of classic yeah and And there isn't any and now I don't really believe in leftism so-called as a project at all it is a very superficial approach to politics right it's the same as like you're going to interview Alex Jones but you don't do any research into why he's criticized. It's just these controversial and are people saying things that aren't fair and this kind of thing, right? And it's edgy to talk to him because he's edgy. And But the, but that personal expression there, of, you know, I bought into Bernie Sanders and then I felt betrayed by him. So now I became kind of reactionary. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that's, yeah. that sounds like when you go on that vibes, sounds like you. that's yeah. what you, you do. Yeah, there is a the deep mystery here. Like, and, and she's diagnosing it quite accurately. So kudos yeah. there. Yeah. It is surprising to me that this is such a popular podcast. They make something like $25,000 a month. I don't know, probably more. Who knows? But a lot. I think that's just from the Patreon subscriptions or something. So I don't know what their raw numbers are, but it's incredibly popular. So yeah, but there's a lot of people out there, Chris, who feel like they're getting something from it. And I don't think that they're gun-toting Christian people from the Midwest. I think that they're people who like to think of themselves as hip and sophisticated. Disenchanted with like the liberal orthodoxy in New York, lower Manhattan. Like I can see why amongst that crowd, it would be appealing, but it's just, (laughs) it is what it is. But okay, so the last, just the last, the hammer this deal of the the coffin. They're quite clear about the way that they approach politics. Were you ever a Bernie bro? No. Good for you. You just didn't. I didn't pay attention that much to politics. Don't. It's. I feel honestly that's also partly I feel not just disillusioned but like I got scammed into even caring about a political <laughs> project. Like that was it was like it, I was emotionally manipulated. Mm-hmm. 
into aligning myself politically with some candidate. And now I'm like, why did I even, what a worthless, <laughs> besides it's like sociological and kind of like psychosocial mm-hmm. insights, I feel like politics is just useless. That world weary, detached and so alienated from everything. And yeah, just too cool for school. <laughs> I just, yeah. Like I get the appeal amongst a certain kind of listener i can't say i approve though the basic message there of sympathy for you know being turned off by politics or whatever it's very common right i think myself and you might even (laughs) suffer from various levels of that sentiment as well but it's not i don't know just i cared about something and it was yeah uh, and i was disappointed so i'm yeah so over that now it's it is all very self-indulgent and it really doesn't have a great deal to do with politics i mean they have terrible opinions about vaccines for instance but they're all just a reflection of them wearing their opinions on their sleeve like little badges of of honor you know being a black sheep and rebelling against those tongue clicking finger wagging normies it's it, it really functions as a personal brand in a hip and cool social environment more than anything else so yeah like i get it I just, um, <laughs> it's just fucking, yeah, there's just not much to it. But Matt, uh, just to give an example of it being applied to an unrelated topic, here's vibe-based chat around veganism. That's for sure. I feel like veganism is, is bad for fertility. <laughs> Duff. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're meant to be vegans as much as I'm like not a fan of current forms of meat consumption mm-hmm, production because mm-hmm. i'm like an animal rights truther but yeah me too i feel like most people who are in to meat or ancestral diets care a lot and like yeah. were vegetarian or vegan before were you uh, ever vegeta- mm-hmm, okay. vegetarian and vegan mm. and how'd that go for you that created a lot of eczema mm-hmm. and like I- ibs yeah, I feel like two years after or years after becoming a vegetarian is when I started getting eczema and an autoimmune mm-hmm, disorder, mm-hmm. back pain. Mm-hmm. It's getting pushed so much now with the climate change. Of course. Vegetarian veganism. That reminds me of, um, oh, what's the name of Jordan Peterson's daughter? Michaela. Michaela. <laughs> it's like a conversation. You can hear on Michaela's podcast. Like you can imagine a version of that where it's, we all should be vegans or you can imagine a version of it which is we should all eat meat because i heard that you're gonna have a low fertility if you don't you know like it's just as you said vibe-based random vapid (laughs) musings yeah Yeah. and i have not heard death as a shortened version of definitely before that's a new oh haven't you uh, you haven't heard of most deaf most deaf oh i have heard that but i've never heard death death by itself have you heard of totes Totes. Of course I've heard of totes. Okay, I, don't I, don't know, I don't know about different cultures. I didn't know if that was a local thing. Just like all of that. Yeah, I think, you know, veganism is bad for fertility. Oh, uh, yeah, totally. And <laughs> yeah, it just, it's just... <laughs> Fair to say it's not your thing. It's not my thing either. Yeah, and that, but that talk around food, that actually will come up again. Yeah, but one other thing to say, and this is where it's got the link to Peterson and stuff like that, is that there is a consistent theme there. Like, it is a bit random in a way, but there are themes there as well, and they keep 
you know, the natural is good, right? The natural, whatever our ancestors were doing, whatever the Native Americans were doing, that's kind of the key, right? Yeah. So back to vaccines, Matt, back to vaccines. Well, what's your take on vaccines? Because you also mentioned how, like, I don't remember when in like 1940 or 1950, there were like three pediatric vaccines that children in America got. And now there are 38, which seems alarming. And we're like one of the more unhealthy countries and we're at the forefront of handing out pediatric vaccines. Whereas some countries you mentioned that are considered healthier, like Israel, Japan, Sweden, Iceland, um, are fairly low yeah, on the childhood vaccinations. Mm-hmm. People don't talk about this that much. The U.S. has three times the amount of mandatory vaccines than the average developed country in Europe mm-hmm. and Asia. Mm-hmm. And when I was in 1983, when I was born, that meant I got like 10 vaccines. Right. So... In the U.S., it's a way bigger problem than other countries, and the autism rates are higher. Is the U.S. the country with the highest childhood autism, autism rates? or I don't know. There might be some small country somewhere, mm-hmm. but, but probably, yeah, near the top. And also, are vaccines the whole story? Because presumably, the healthier countries that regulate the vaccines are also regulating other aspects of public health more than we do in the United States. Mm. Mm-hmm, that's it. Right. So I, I suspect you, like me, fact-checked this one, Chris. Mm-hmm. But before you leap into a debunking, I just want us to acknowledge that at the very beginning, there was an astonishing piece of reasoning, which was that America is one of the unhealthiest countries and also gets a lot of vaccines. So Yeah. Interesting to see the comparison to countries like Japan, especially given later that we're going to be told that East Asian society is autistic. And if you listen on, he'll go on about hikikomori and stuff, but none of it is consistent, right? That doesn't matter. So what was your fact checking about childhood vaccinations? America doesn't get a vastly higher number of vaccines than other developed countries. That's the first thing I remember. America gives most of the same vaccines that are in the rest of the developed world, but they separate them out into separate vaccinations, right? In some countries, they're kind of lumped together, like the MMR vaccine or the I had the BCG in the UK. So, but the coverage is basically the same. And also, there's still no association with any vaccines and autism. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It's just that autism is a disorder that's often detected in childhood. And you get vaccines in childhood. So that's the association. Yep. All the claims have been debunked and the study is extremely flawed that have claimed to show relationship. So Yeah, so it is kind of impressive that bit of reasoning because it was like bad reasoning layered on <laughs> inaccurate factual assumptions, right? Where even if the factual statements they made were correct, then their logic still wouldn't follow, right? They're totally spurious association between these things. But the facts aren't even right. So um you know, I think you were building up a bit of a case there that 
towel in particular, but the host as well, just have a terrible approach. Yeah, their epistemics are broken. Are broken. Completely yeah. broken. <laughs> they're pure, <laughs> pure vibe based. And maybe they're good for understanding some avant-garde drama show that's being put on baby. We'll have to take that on faith, right? We can't assess that. They definitely don't work well with science. And I've got two more clips which highlight this in all their beauty. So here's a discussion about, you know, so we've established that vaccines are a big problem. How big of a problem? Well, how big of a problem are vaccines? Mm. Because, for instance, I have a reputation for being like a rabid anti-vaxxer and I'm really mm -hmm. not. Like I got my kid all the normal, like standard pediatric vaccines mm -hmm. um, for like practical reasons, because they can't continue on in school if they don't have them. And you're mm -hmm. literally just shut out from society mm -hmm. and have to become like a trad cap homestead or homeschooler <laughs> if you want to like. You have to live in an aboriginal <laughs> tribe. Like a thatch hut. Mm hmm. <laughs> well, the more I look into it, the worse it seems. And mm. I stopped myself from looking into it too much. Right. Like I've got this really thick book, Dissolving Illusions, mm -hmm. that that talks about how sanitation and other things like that were what lowered the mm -hmm. infectious disease rates, not vaccines. But I haven't read it. But it just... Mm. I don't know how bad it is. It could be way, like way worse than what I already think. Yeah. Well, he doesn't know. Totally ignorant. Hasn't even read. But the book is thick, Matt. It's big. <laughs> <laughs> it's really thick. So, you know, it's not like you can make a thick book with yeah. wrong information in that. I think it's kind of funny because they're not even hiding like how little effort <laughs> they put into <laughs> figuring out the truth here. Because that would be uncool, right? To do a lot of, you know, nerdy research and stuff. He presents himself as having done a lot of reflection and research onto this topic. And they're kind of like, you know, deferring to him mm -hmm. as the expert here. And I also, I meant to say, but the whole framing about this, the introduction was like, what's your take on vaccines? Right? You have to have a take on vaccines right this isn't edgy this is exactly standard bog standard for their particular ecosystem to not have a take on vaccines would be the edgy thing to just be like i don't know you know the yeah my doctor said i should get it so i got it yeah that would be edgy and like ahead of the curve but that's not the game here and um, at the next clip i know We've already demonstrated the level of reasoning that's applied, but it can't be stressed enough. Here's Tao Lin talking about vaccines and how many he would give his children and whatnot. If I had a kid, I feel like I, I'd be fine with them getting like 10 vaccines. Right. Just because it's like, and I just make them healthy in other ways and they, they should be fine. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't let them get like 30 vaccines. But do you believe that there is a definite connection between autism and vaccines? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I feel like I can picture a glyphosate molecule, uh -huh. like being breathed in or eaten or injected, and it going into the stomach and binding with aluminum uh -huh. molecules and going into the blood and going into the brain and then in the brain the glyphosate and the aluminum separates 
uh-huh. and they're both toxic. Okay. I didn't just make this up. It's this yeah. researcher, this MIT researcher, Stephanie Seneff. She's researched uh-huh. this a lot. So glyphosate is in vaccines. This nonprofit organization, Moms Across America, found out mm-hmm. when they sent vaccines to a lab. And Stephanie Seneff and another researcher confirmed this and published a paper on it. Okay. And it's in vaccines because vaccines contain soy, sucrose, Uh egg protein, and a lot of other things that are contaminated with glyphosate. So he's a bog-standard anti-vaxxer whose brain has been contaminated by brain worms. It all started with Andrew Wakefield and it's never gone away. There's been one born every minute ever since. The glyphosate thing was so absurd, Chris. <laughs> do you know Do you know about that? I think I know the details behind it. Let me see if I get this straight. So glyphosate, Roundup, I've got some in the shed. Yeah. I use it all the time, right? It's a standard thing you spray to kill weeds and things like that. And the idea is, is because some ingredients from vaccines are made from non-organic crops, there's some organic ingredients that's probably distilled out of a corn husk or something like that. It's been distilled a thousand times. But because it came from a farm that might have used glyphosate at some point, then theoretically there could be some infinitesimal trace amount of glyphosate in the vaccine. So there you go. Autism. That's it. That's it. Antivax claims that glyphosate is like, you know, it's a new dimerosol basically. But it's even worse than pimerosol because at least that was used as a preservative in vaccines. But in this case, they're saying, you know, it's an unacknowledged toxic ingredient that is causing all of these problems. And Anna goes on to talk about it. And I'll just play it because I can't do it justice. So it's not just telling that reasons like this, you know, like, uh, here's a bit about yes, ending that. That's contaminated with glyphosate because the cows and pigs get fed. Yeah, and they're like factory farmed animals. I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. I was, today on Twitter, there was like a factory farming discourse oh. that was picked video. up by Glenn Greenwald, of course. Like an awful video, yeah, like of a of a pig in like, like a pig's sad a eye container. It, oh. It's like humanoid eye <laughs> <laughs> bearing the pain of the world. Um, and there there has been some research. I mean, glyphosate, right, is the compound that's found in Roundup. Yeah. Uh, in what? In Roundup. What's which is, that? Um, it, it's like a big chemical pesticide that was used after DDT. Is that what it's called? Was banned? Oh Tao talks mm-hmm. about this in his yeah. essay. Yeah. And that's been attributed to increasing the rates of all sorts of diseases like diabetes, Alzheimer's, etc. Um I've talked about this before. Um Eli's dad, my baby daddy, his father died at age 49 of a now curable cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was spraying on his property and it was a totally avoidable, preventable thing that there was like a class action lawsuit that a bunch of families were involved in. Yeah, so we should ban vibe-based reasoning, right, Chris? But just to spell it out in case anyone missed it, there may well, all right? There is demonstrable dangers of, if you're out there spraying away glyphosate, getting Yes, covered, and there has been lawsuits. Has been lawsuits, getting covered in clouds of the stuff, you're inhaling it, like asbestos or something like that, right? It's, it's going to be bad for you. They have lots of warnings and things on the labels now. But what they're referring to in terms of the link to vaccines, she cites this as a part of the reasoning for why it's plausible, is that, The idea goes is that 
if there are pigs or something out there and they're grazing in a paddock that might at some point have been treated with Roundup, then at some point the pig could ingest some little bit of it and then the extract that they get from the animal, which then might go into the vaccines, is going to have these trace amounts. It's a completely different thing to inhaling clouds of it when you're spraying. Are you saying they're conspiratorial in nature and like very loose with how they're applying standards of evidence? Yes. Yeah, oh, no, Matt. Yeah. That, that wouldn't apply. But a lot of the time I'm thinking about like the truth about 9-11 or something. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's this idea that like things are so complicated that there's no truth. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that stops people from investigating things. Mm-hmm. I think that's another classic scapegoat, like saying autism is purely genetic. It's. I think it's meant to like... The Cast idea out that there's no and truth. silence you from well, asking it's a questions. Homo idea, mm-hmm. with that I sort of s- s- mm-hmm. do subscribe to a bit. Mm-hmm. But that's it's also very autistic to believe in a kind of well. When you really like roll up your truth. sleeves and start digging in the details, like the the bigger picture loses its shape, and you start to panic because there mm-hmm. is what's that? Ex- what does that expression mean? The forest for the trees or whatever. <laughs> yeah. The forest through the trees. Wouldn't it be amazing, Chris, if the very thing that all of these environmental contaminants caused, autism, actually turned out to be the superpower that enabled us to sift through all of this complex, confusing information to find the truth about what happened? That would be a turn up for the books, wouldn't it? You just get there, though, Matt. Like 9-11 truth stuff, just to highlight conspiracies flow together. They're rarely isolated, right? So Towlin's bad epistemics about vaccines, autism, (laughs) everything applies also to 9-11 and no pushback from our intrepid hosts. Instead, they talk about how the concept of truth has been attacked by postmodernists, which Dasha is kind of on board with in some way, but actually autistic people they are focused on like the whole thing, Matt. It's <laughs> it's so flimsy, and ironically, their neck of the woods, their contrarian right, is absolutely soaked in postmodernism. They're like Jordan Peterson or Tucker Carlson. Nothing is true. Mm. Everything is a conspiracy. Like yeah. it's such a weird melange of. Things. I get what you're saying, Chris, and it's just occurred to me that although we talked about this before the episode, that in virtually always they are very unlike the gurus that we cover. Yeah. I'm sure they'll score very low on our grammar, but they do have that one aspect that is super in common with them, which is that they have that kind of hipster, contrarian, black sheep type of thing, which gives them the kind of insight that leads them funnily enough, straight to, you know, your standard reactionary conspiratorial bullshit. So in that respect, I think their self-image and and the image that they project for the audience, and who would also probably be the similar, is quite similar to Brett and Heather Haying, right? They're also into natural health. They also believe we should go back and get back in a more authentic relationship with nature and that vaccines are killing us. And they also would not describe themselves as right-wing reactionaries, right? They describe themselves as, as liberals, but a special hip kind of liberal that is actually against everything that leftists today are for. So in that sense, that sort of hipster politics 
I think they're on the money. Yeah, and I feel this is a little unfair, Matt, but to give you some flashbacks to those meat-based conversations or any number of the things that we've talked about, I'll just play you a couple of clips that surround hang-ups about diets. And that's probably why in Aboriginal societies, in addition to, because the real sort of point of the essay is how you... Um, were able to remedy some of the symptoms mm -hmm. um, through returning to basically like sorry, like an ancestral diet mm -hmm. and taking kind of mm, health measures. Mm -hmm. Just taking all kinds of health measures. All kinds of health measures, Matt. And ancestral diet can cure autism, right? Where have we heard? This inflammation, you know, eating a meat diet is the cure of all ills. And uh, not not against vaccines in general, just maximum of 10 or so. The rest you can take care of by eating lots of leafy greens. But Matt, have you, you know, there's debates on these kind of things around what food is good. Like, what about fish oils? Good, bad? There's sort of a beef between them and the repeat people, specifically having to do with fish oil. Because mm. repeat... Peters say that the fish oil is <laughs> rancid and when I heard that I was like it felt true like I was like of course why wouldn't it be rancid I and know. the fish oil is horrible for me it, it sucks when you're like doing something that you think is healthy because <laughs> mm -hmm. that's how I used, I used to eat kale all the time and I was like dying and every day I'd force myself to like choke down a bunch of kale when I lived in LA because I thought I was like gotta eat the right things for my body <laughs> And now I'm finding out I was eating totally the wrong things. But I have a kind of quirky idea about nutrition, um, which is that I, I eat McDonald's a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that McDonald's is actually healthy for me. I'm not saying, you know, people should be eating McDonald's. Mm -hmm. um, but because it makes me happy to eat it like a child, uh -huh. it reduces stress which reduces inflammation which like if i feel good when i'm eating it it can't be that right for me <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah i can see that helping a lot irony or not <laughs> are they joking are they not it doesn't really matter at some point does it this is becoming a very common diagnostic thing though mental issues around food right you remember huberman and atia talked about like stuffing their face with donuts on the cheek days and eating 20 pizzas or whatever or it does come up a lot that's right i'm, I'm not saying it's good advice for everybody but it works for me yeah in, and inflammation there's inflammation there's so many of these things that i just the, the type of focus for modern humanity is on these a, a very specific set of chronic you know problems they're worried about vaccines but they seem to have a lot of health problems themselves so here's a bit more Okay, McDonald's is not the healthiest thing, but it's actually healthier than a lot of the supposedly healthy foods you're ingesting because it does have like a lot of animal fats and mm -hmm. proteins mm -hmm. and stuff. <laughs> it's food. It's know. definitely edible. <laughs> yeah. I used to eat a lot of almonds and turmeric mm -hmm. and spinach and a lot of things that I found out last year contain a lot of plant anti-nutrients what is that defense chemicals mm -hmm. there are these chemicals mm. plants make so that animals don't eat them and that a lot of these are harmful like oxalates oh. and i feel like that was giving me headaches a lot 
-hmm. and eczema. Mm -hmm. I used to have a eczema. <laughs> Just <laughs> my crotch would be itchy. Yeah. A lot because of the food I ate. For sure. Mm -hmm. uh, the skin issues are, I have suffered from acne and uh -huh. <laughs> I've had, mm, I don't know if it was eczema, but not, not for a long time. Scintillating insights about the properties of food and, and definitely very clearly science-based fact, yeah. you know, and the, the plants, Matt, they got these chemicals to stop the animals. Yeah, anti-nutrients. That's all bullshit, You've been by the way. scratching your crotch. <laughs> well, I have, but that's not the reason. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it's, that's all bullshit. I fact-checked that one. Oh, God. I mean, yeah. You know, the natural natural health and the obsessive concern with diet and also these these chronic diseases. I mean, who hasn't got eczema from time to time <laughs> these days? <laughs> or inflammation or whatever. There is like the modern... Modern humanity, because we eliminated these terrible things like polio, right? Because we're generally not starving, we're not dealing with the kinds of health issues, like genuinely serious health issues that we dealt with a couple hundred Infectious years ago. Infectious diseases. Yeah. Whatnot. There's a thing in, in psychology, which is like a, a universal human constant, which we just, we adjust our range of concerns to fit, to suit what, whatever level we're at. And it is so clearly what's going on here. And I'm not talking about them specifically. I'm talking about the whole zeitgeist at the moment. There's more about fish oil, but I'm going to spare you the, the <laughs> three more clips specifically about fish oil and, and whether it makes Taolin gassy or uh, that kind of thing. But there was some discussion around raw milk. That was particularly notable. So here's Sasha introducing that. I had a kind of spurgy ex-boyfriend who recommended it to me. And this was around the time that like the raw milk. I used to really try to drink raw milk and like do. I really was trying to kind of eat in this right wing health way. <laughs> um, but it really just stressed me out and didn't make I didn't. I was taking tons of supplements. Now I basically don't take any mm -hmm. and eat McDonald's and take benzos. So the link there, Matt, to the autism and the Spurgy Asperger's, right? The ex-boyfriend who recommended it. And just to make that image complete about consuming raw milk, that's like kind of lefty thing or like, you know, health and wellness space issue. But just look at this image. Oh my God, I got to go because um, raw milk is actually legal in New York. Yeah, so it's it's actually stressful to procure so the I'm raw. Getting milk. a, I'm committing a felony yeah. by meeting up with these Amish people who yeah, are dealing me this milk. These Amish girls who could go to federal prison for giving me this milk. I don't even like, and then I'd be like chugging the milk. <laughs> makes me feel fucking sick. There is this obsessive concern with diet. But doing insane and dangerous shit, like you know, worried about vaccines and chugging raw milk that makes you feel sick like then you have to get bootlegged from Amish people. Amish people yeah but it requires so much effort too like people don't have something better to do with their time except to go on an odyssey to obtain raw milk which they now recognize as like not helpful it does have some parallels with you know Addy and Huberman and their intermittent fasting or injecting themselves with something which they then come to decide is yeah. like not I, mean, I know people are annoyed at me pointing that out but I do think there is some parallels here yeah. admittedly Addy is a lot less 
vibe based <laughs> <laughs> yes to his credit yeah 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 it's like this is the weird neurotic things that they do to cope with what they see as this horrible artificial world full of contaminants and vaccines and stuff uh, yeah uh, well i'll get out of the food space but i'll i'll move us on we're rounding the corner so uh here's a another clip for you like i gave him twenty thousand dollars once uh-huh. and i made him write out a plan like if this doesn't work, you're going to do this plan. Uh-huh. And it was all like, you can't take out any more loans. You have to <laughs> do your normal business stuff. Like he has lasers and he's like a inventor. But after I gave him the 20000 we went to the bank together to wire it. And the bank was telling us, like, this seems like a scam. And my dad was just like, no, 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 I, it's not, it's not. My son is my own son is scamming me. And then after after that, he figured out just the scammers said like the scammers actually sent him like a bank account that was fake from HSBC, uh-huh. and they just kept leading him on. And he like every time there'd be some new fee or mm-hmm. something. That was five months ago when he stayed with me. Uh-huh. And he's well, staying with me again in like a month. The only thing I could think of is to try to give him psychedelics. So this is Taolin describing his dad and his penchant for falling victims for scams. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lengthy segment. So one part, it, it just goes into great detail. He wants their advice on, you know, what's it mean that this dad just falls for scams. And there is like a confessional aspect this discussion right which is surprisingly open but i can't tell if this is the vibe in general like oversharing or it's taolin style of delivery or mm. so here's a bit more the richer that you get the more money you need mm. my dad never learned that he just keeps getting pleasure out of it and he just has no spiritual aspect mm-hmm or hobbies or interests or friends. Well, I was going to ask you, that was my next question. <laughs> if he has hobbies. If he has yeah. hobbies or friends. No. Does he gamble? He used to. Yeah. Oh, no. He. My mom told me that recently he started gambling with some people on whether the deal he's working on is a scam <laughs> or not. Yeah, so my recollection, Chris, is that the point of this story, which they talk about for a while, is just that his dad's a real duper. Like, he's pretty disappointing or stupid or something. So, yeah, I think the appeal is that it's it's oversharing, right? You listen to someone talking about a close family member. Yeah. Yeah, and so it feels more intimate, right? Chris, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. The, the vibe is very much the um, the young people in American Beauty, the movie. For instance, the daughter will just talk about her dad like that, and that's one of the appealing aspects of the movie, right? Same sort of world-weary, exasperated, droll style as well. I feel like it's a bit of a shit. Well, for me, I didn't care. No, <laughs> like, you whatever. Know, that in itself wasn't interesting. What interested me was shortly after describing what a rube his dad was, he described this incident. I got scammed recently. My Facebook fan page got stolen. Oh, what? Someone emailed me saying, asking if I wanted to do a podcast for $2,000. And I said... Well, you know that's a scam. <laughs> yeah, I, I should have known. It was us. But it was sponsored by Nike. Oh. It just made sense. 
It was done by some celebrity to- to- Tony something. Hmm. Some guy with like 190 Instagram followers. And then I got on a phone call with them because they were going to show me how to do Facebook Live or something. And somehow they took a screenshot of my screen. <gasps> I showed them my screen mm-hmm. and they got my URL. <laughs> and they just used that to take my account. Damn. That's so smart. I have, I do admire the scammer. I know that's like humorous story, right? But immediately after talking about how susceptible his dad is and like, you know, doesn't have the ability, he describes what is an obvious scam. All right. Somebody with a couple of hundred followers on Instagram offering you thousands to go on the podcast and they want to hop on a call and get you to share your screen like i feel like he's in a glass house flinging rocks around yeah but i think that's kind of the point it's kind of the same thing you know what i mean he's kind of putting himself down when he puts his father down in a way but this is the point for me matt that there's an obvious parallel there but this is after a little gap and none of them at any point is like oh this is a bit like your dad isn't it <laughs> like so True. i feel like it's just the compartmentalization thing where you know okay we talked about that now i'll tell this funny story because he doesn't you know like the bit there would be i guess this acorn doesn't fall far from the tree or something right but you're saying this was all knowing they were making that. No, no, I don't think they were linking the things together. I think these are just random self-deprecating mumblecore type anecdotes. <laughs> not much, not much in it. I don't want to spend too much more time with Tao Lin, but just to mention, Matt, here's his approach to getting information. I feel like when I'm looking for truth, I just find like details. Uh-huh. Like tons of details and some are more credible than others. And I'm always just building and changing my model of everything. Mm-hmm. And it's always changing depending on like what I just read. Cause I'll forget like a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. So my view on things is just always changing. But Dasha, you mentioned being alone and getting into esoteric stuff, isolating you. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's isolated me. Like, just learning about, say, vaccines. Mm-hmm. Just finding out vaccines aren't as good as everyone thinks is <laughs> isolated. Of course. Hey, Red yeah. Brother. Yeah, because vaccines really depend on a kind of social consensus, uh-huh. right? So I guess it goes to your point earlier, Chris, that their epistemics, their ability to figure out what's what is is terrible. But it also, in the way he describes the way he goes about his research, like accruing all the little details and then mm. and, and whatever, like obviously it does sound like most of the people who do their own research on the internet. <laughs> the internet. Yeah. Uh, but as well as that, it's also self-deprecatory, right? Because he also yeah, says, he oh, because then I forget. So mm. it's, it's very much in the style, the persona is, is very anti-guru. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, well, okay, yes. In terms of like confident delivery and all that kind of stuff, it's more conspiracy theorist style reasoning. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they get to the same place. They've got the same conspiracy theories, the same anti-vax type stuff. But it's just very different from a Weinstein, a Jordan Peterson, who would would never admit that they ever forgot anything, right? (laughs) Yeah, and in terms of further evidence about bad epistemic habits or, or sources of information, here's... Howland discussing the kinds of things, you know, he listens to to get him inspired. Oh, yeah. I want to ask you about the mandalas. What's that all about? It's just 
It was a good way to do do something. It's meditative. <laughs> do something without having to be on drugs. I started <laughs> after my pharmaceutical drug addiction. I was in my room a lot and just drawing and listening to Joe Rogan a lot. <laughs> cool. If you went on Joe Rogan, would that be your favorite podcast you ever went on? Maybe. Yeah, I think it would. Be. Fair. Are you a Joe Rogan fan? Big time, yeah. Okay. I love Joe Rogan. Are you a Tucker fan? I like him, yeah. Mm. I've seen some things, yeah. Yeah, I like him. I think this is part of why some people might have questions of like the depth of Talon's insights. Like, mm. uh, yeah, I'm making mandalas because it's something to do. And I listen to a lot of Rogan, so mm. yeah. I do think this, Matt, is perhaps, you know, what... A lot of critics of modern art think is actually under the hood. <laughs> <You know>, like, <laughs> yeah, he's probably not representing the art scene. Avant-garde artist, avant-garde or is itself. he? This is the question. <laughs> is is he not representing where they are? That esoteric point. So apparently he makes mandala type stuff, artwork. But that reminds me, Matt, that there was a segment on reincarnation, the mm. esoteric reincarnation so let me just get that clip for you do you believe in reincarnation reincarnation yeah or past <laughs> lives or whatever you would i don't know but i'm interested in it do you i don't know mm. not i mean i'm open to it conceptually but um a lot of i'm people. a catholic so i believe mm. in mm. the eternal afterlife i mm. i can see i mean i believe in reincarnation in like a purely technical sense in that i believe that there are certain types that repeat themselves throughout time and history getting a bit jonathan pajot at the end i wanted to play that because conceptually being open to reincarnation but then you know being like but you know i'm a trad calf right so like heaven or hell so what is that <laughs> how much of a trad calf are you this reincarnation in the conception of traditional Catholicism it wasn't considered compatible in my Catholic upbringing that's very much a dorm room type conversation isn't it <laughs> it is but these people are much too old I know to be in a dorm room but I guess maybe you're underestimating Chris a lot of normal people just talk like this they do but the contradictions that's what gets me Matt the contradictions mm -hmm. so you believe in after you die what happens um, you go to heaven or hell, and then, but I don't know, I'm open to different metaphysical kind of, but maybe something happens after that, but that mm. basically the point of life is to achieve salvation, is to become a saint, mm -hmm. and the greatest tragedy is yet to perish and burn in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could also think, like, reincarnation works on, like, a technical, functional level, if you think of, like, what having kids is which is like reincarnating not n not even yourself like you can't even think of yourself because you're someone else's kid mm -hmm. like you're mm -hmm. constantly reincarnating and mix remixing some type of lineage mm -hmm. dorm room conversation pretty much sums it up that is about as insightful as various conversations i had at university but mm. yeah my reincarnation you know i feel the trad calfing 
it's a little bit of a pose. It feels like the metaphysical commitments are not taken that seriously. <laughs> I feel like everything is a pose here. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like literally everything. I wouldn't read too much into anything, really. It's all just stuff that sounds good at the time. Does it sound good? No, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> Straight thoughts wander in, your mouth moves, and then they wander out again. That's pretty much it. I'm not liking us right now, Chris. We sound so disdainful, so snobbish, so whatever. But, you know, what can you do? You put this content in front of me. <laughs> I don't know that there's a way to engage with this that isn't disdainful. But snobbish is the wrong word, Matt, because it's not like this is the people. This is not what the people do. Your average Joes aren't doing this. This is what, like, hipster people in Manhattan do at their avant-garde art festivals. Yeah, except, of course, they've got the alt-right pilled thing going on right. as well. That's the one thing about it that's interesting, combining the hipster, artsy-fartsy Manhattan vibe with that. So it's a curious little thing. You know, you can hear <laughs> the talking points that you tend to hear in, you know, trad con spaces as well but is it ironic who can tell matt and then there's birth control that gets rid of it all well yeah Mm -hmm. which is awful what's your take on birth control net negative or net positive Hmm, net neutral that's an option too i know it's really unhealthy Mm -hmm. super unhealthy i read this book called the garden of fertility mm-hmm. that talks about how bad they are and she promotes just being aware of your cycle and knowing when you can get pregnant or not mm-hmm. and she talks about how um certain christian groups i think mm-hmm. teach this it is increasingly interesting really isn't it because it, it is this interesting blend of that trad conservative sort of instincts with you know new agey spiritual yeah. alter- alternative health thing plus this sort of affected world weary hipster sophisticated vibe it's a wild combination it really speaks to like it's just a different world these days in 2023 going on 24 then the cross-pollination yeah. aspects yeah i've got i've got another clip which kind of highlights all these things interacting the trad con with the noble savage kind of presentation and the other ways of knowing alt health perspectives just listen to this she cooked a lot of meat and like Mm. taiwanese chinese Mm. stuff that was really healthy for me i'm grateful for that were you breastfed Hmm? were you breastfed no yeah another interesting factor i wasn't breastfed either Mm. Um, that's a big factor i feel like i was but only for six months Mm. Which they tell you is enough, but I don't think so. I think the longer you can go, and then pre- preferably until the child is seven <laughs> to ten years old. <laughs> yeah, there's Eskimos breastfeed for up to like six years. Mm-hmm. In Aboriginal groups, all breastfeed it for like at least two years. Wow. Right, I think like two is probably like the sweet spot. I think once the child can talk to you, it's definitely... <laughs> Time to stop. <laughs> that's no, Matt, that's not culturally relative enough, but it's just an interesting mixture of perspectives because there is the standard liberal fondness for traditional societies and concerns about artificial toxins and the environment pollutants and all that. 
but mixed in with like the kind of tradcon stuff, like yeah. knowing yeah. how many yeah. months you were breastfed. Yeah. Like, why do they all know that? <laughs> I've never... I haven't, never had that, I haven't had that conversation with my mother either. Yeah, um, but they act like, of course, they. everyone knows that, right? Like, everybody's had that conversation. <laughs> so it just... <laughs> oh, it's so funny. You know, but it's true. Like, the natural health, obviously, breastfeeding is a hugely big thing in that area too. So there's some consistent themes. We can say that. There was one clip that I forgot the play that that relates to this thing we're talking about and connects in a previous one that i feel we shouldn't miss out on so we heard about you know the raw milk the escapades to get raw milk from amish people right but Taolin has his own milk routine that he follows now i drink muscle milk because it's sweet <laughs> <laughs> wait isn't aren't dairy products an inflammatory for if they're pasteurized, I feel like yeah, okay, but yeah. not if they're if they're unpasteurized, then they're good. They should be okay. Uh, yeah, okay. I have to let my raw milk ferment for like twenty four hours. What, if is, I drink, what does that mean? You just like, I leave just, it out in the sun? Yeah, in the <laughs> kitchen, I just leave it there, and then you drink it. Mm -hmm. If I drink it just without doing that, I get really gassy and sometimes diarrhea their life sounds so horrific <laughs> to me having the meetings with amish people to chug raw milk that makes you want to puke or in Taolin's case leaving raw milk out on the counter for one day before you branch it down because otherwise you're getting diarrhea all the time and like jesus christ no wonder they have the attitude that they do because to live like this sounds like hell it's like like hell but how much of it is real that's the bit i can't quite figure out is it authentic to what, to what degree is it yeah how much of it is a, a pose this is a probably a legitimate point to raise and by even asking the question matt you're showing you know that you're deeply unhip you don't get it you don't really get like what it's about and all that kind of shit and just to come towards the finishing line so like all these kind of podcasts they need to emphasize that they are not belonging to any traditional political camp yeah how do you identify politically i don't think i've ever identified with any party yeah mm -hmm. for sure and also i think it's very hard to be an artist and be a conservative hmm really like a true what conservative about, yes like, not like a right-wing person but an actual mm -hmm. like kind of um old classic style conservative interesting the problem isn't so much that it's like reactionary or right-wing but that it's it's very like literal and canned and they see like degeneracy and immorality everywhere and it's very hard to make art from that place because you have to be kind of like morally agnostic in order to be creative or not even <clears throat> you can't you can't like um shoehorn your morality into your work and that way it's hard to have any strong ideology. Right. You know, for me, I feel like I don't really have politics. I just don't want to be hindered <laughs> creatively. And that's sort of the driving, you know, animus behind how I orient myself in yeah. the world. I don't if you're like... not with me, you're against me. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I don't like feeling lied to or manipulated. So 
my position is not like a liberal or a conservative one. It's like the position that I feel personally is on the side of truth or my truth or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's like, I think most people who have or try to have like a mind of their own. Do you have a strong feeling about the truth? Yeah, I'm just for looking for the truth. Yeah, There's a component of that that I'm sympathetic with, which is that it's okay not to be super political or to feel a strong affiliation with any particular ideology or I know. party. That part's fine. And I kind of agree that like, if you're driven by moral or ideological commitments, and I think it's hard to be an artist in that respect. Is well. it our artist theme for not having strong political stances or injecting their politics into their art? That's not my experience. Some of them do. <laughs> yeah, some of them. Bob Dylan, famously apolitical. Uh, he's a He's a folk singer, Chris. He's not an artist. I'm thinking Jackson. <laughs> I'm thinking Jackson Pollock or something. I mean, right? You and your expressionists like slashing paint <laughs> on the floor and stuff, right? It doesn't mean doesn't mean you know socialism is good. It just means it's it's a picture. Did Van Gogh have an ideology? But yeah, I, but I, I get I, the I argument, but I just yeah. think there's a lot of artists in the yeah. world. Sure, but there's just an intrinsic dichotomy between conservatism, like she said conservatism and creativity and i get that but i just think a lot of artists are highly ideological people because they're passionate about whatever the hell they're sure. into and sometimes that's some art style and sometimes it's some message that they want to convey with their art right don't get me wrong i i didn't like most of what they said <laughs> but you know it was kind of authentic i think like she said she, she just she doesn't like being lied to what they believe in is just finding out the truth for yourself i mean they are kind of authentically voicing their conspiratorial self-centered sort of point of view in terms of you know get out of my way i'm just against any politics that stops me from doing what i want yeah what are you rebelling against what you got man but the issue for me in this case and with a lot of the people that take this sort of stances they seem completely unaware or at least to very substantially downplay the obvious skew in the content yes there's a melange of different influences but like the references are all in one direction, like right, yeah. Glenn Greenwald is good, Joe Rogan is good, RFK Jr. is good, Trump is unfairly maligned, Tucker Carlson, Tucker is, Carlson good. is good, Biden is bad. Yeah, I get that. So in that sense, it's very much like our classic gurus, Brett and Eric Weinstein, who do the same kind of extreme sympathy to all of those reactionary figures. But they're not conservatives themselves. They're just right-thinking, independent. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And just to take that point home. I don't think we've ever been like primarily a political podcast. Cultural commentary. Yeah. But I think, yeah, we had an audience initially that was like, oh, there was just a lot of that energy and fervor. Cultural commentary is probably right, but I wouldn't dispute that. But I think there just is a significant skew injected and it's really obvious i mean this is a random episode and like we just talked about all the references that you can pick up clearly highlight the kind of ecosystem and sources that they're relying on and the anti-vax stuff and uh you know yeah there's 9-11 conspiracies and yep. trump's gonna win the election blah 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 yeah yeah this is what postmodern conservatism looks like right people are really yeah yeah that's a good yeah good way to present the postmodern conservatism well that's it matt there's there's endless steps that could go on but yeah please stop <laughs> yeah please stop to go first i'll just see it rather straightforwardly i 
don't think they really fit the secular guru template very well at all. As we've discussed, they're doing a lot of stuff that I think is bad. They've got bad epistemics. They're conspiracy prone. They don't acknowledge their obvious political skew and they're wrap themselves in a cushion or an armor of irony that allows them to kind of dance away from any statements that they make. And the whole thing is beating you that if you criticize them or you take them seriously, you're just demonstrating how uncool you are because you don't get like how none of it really matters, man. And some people might like that. I can kind of see why they would appeal to certain people fed up with liberal orthodoxies and the left progressive spaces they go in. But from my perspective, it's just like boring conspiracy standard stuff with like an extra veneer of irony. But it isn't really secular guru stuff because a lot of what they're saying is kind of tongue-in-cheek and self-disparaging and, you know, recognizing how fickle they are and how prone to change. And that's not really what the secular gurus do. So really, this is just like cultural commentary and half-arsed political commentary that attracts an audience. So they won't score high on the grometer, I would estimate. So, Hmm. you know, not good, don't like them, but not secular gurus, really. No. No, there's that self-deprecatory style and very low-key downplaying where, you know, you can still say stuff, but you go, I'm just a dummy. I don't really know. But I really think, you know, the world's going to end in a few days. Yeah, so it's like Rogan style a bit, but yeah, they're not really gurus. It's just a really an interesting little peek into a microcosm of what we said, postmodern conservatism, what it looks like. And it can be a little bit surprising to people if you still have these sort of old-fashioned notions of what a right-winger looks like and what a left-winger looks like. I read something, a bit of research apparently, Chris, this is a bit of a a sidetrack, about, you know, bubbles and things, you know, people have heard about information bubbles on the internet. And this article was sort of debunking that idea a little bit and said one of the things that the internet does is bring you into contact with a huge diversity of opinions most of which are going to be incredibly unappealing to you. So so in your normal day-to-day life, we tend to assort with people who have pretty much the same assumptions and are working from the same place as we are. And there's so much aggravation on a platform like Twitter because everyone is bumping up against people from vastly different backgrounds and sort of worldviews. And this little example of us <laughs> bumping into their little world is, mm. is, I think, a good example of that, where, you know, it's just incredibly tedious and distasteful to me. But as you said, they're not really gurus, except for the conspiracy adult stuff yeah, and being anti-establishment and maybe a bit of pseudo profound bullshit, which is kind of, I think that's obligatory on the Lower East Side. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it would. The thing is, I, I keep coming back to this point you made that like, if these were 20 somethings in a dorm, if Joe Rogan was a 20 something college student, I'd find it annoying, but I'd also be like, yeah, but you know. And if Elon Musk was a nine-year-old boy, then I'd be far more. Yeah, it's pseudo-philosophical profundity is a occupational hazard at certain stages of life, but they're not. <laughs> right? They're almost the same age as you and me. And they're much more successful. Like they're richer, all of that stuff. It's not like we're punching down in any way, shape or form, right? Their audience wouldn't like us 
Elo, <laughs> this is what you said about like two ecosystems that, you know, are just not made to... Oil and water, Chris. Oil and water. Oil and water. Yeah, because it's not just that they're ironic-pilled, sardonic delivery. They're also conspiracy fears. They clearly don't understand anything about science or that kind of thing. So their approach is just all arts and humanities, postmodern style. And that doesn't gel. Yeah, amazingly low critical literacy when it comes to consuming information on the internet yeah so yeah america do better with your education <laughs> <laughs> yeah i noticed we didn't spend very much time on the vocal fry okay and they, <laughs> so, so just bear that in mind i said i was going to talk about it and i didn't and the use of the edgy words and stuff that's as exciting as like when teenagers do it, it's like, yeah. great, congratulations. Well, well, Chris, I could have a go at them for sort of lilting up at the end of sentences, but unfortunately, you can't. I can't. No, you, can't. <laughs> you cannot, not in this podcast. Because <laughs> yeah. Austra Australians do that. I feel like you were taking the dig at me. No, no, Australian. Didn't you know that? Oh. That's an Australian thing. No, it's an Northern Irish thing, Matt. How dare you? We do it. We did it first. <laughs> it's our thing, man. Yeah, right. uh, you're wrong. You're wrong, but it's all right. So that's them. We are hopefully next time going to look at some people that are more applicable to the, the guru template. But, you know, it's it's useful sometimes to get comparisons from people that don't particularly well fit. So this is a good illustration of that point, that people can be bad without being secular gurus. All um, right. Okay. So my, a humble suggestion for the next episode, Chris, we should cover someone who either, yeah. it's your choice, either a bona fide 100% fits the guru mold perfectly or pretty well, mm -hmm. or someone who's just like really great, who we find fascinating and interesting. One or the other, but not another <laughs> person who's both <laughs> terrible and not a guru. <laughs> All right, I'll see what I can do. So Matt, we have review of reviews to do and Patreon shout outs, and then we're done. Okay. We're out of here. Right. We're kicking this caboose down the road. So I do have a review from an American with a brain. That's the title of their review. I didn't <laughs> say that. And Madam S, they wrote, Decoding the Gurus is a great podcast for doing yard work, housework, or working out. While most podcasts are edited down to an hour, these guys ramble on for two to three hours. They are so niche that they get very few advertisers interrupting them. There is no need to stop what we are doing to fast forward through the ads. This optimizes the time spent on whatever task we want them to distract us from. They provide on the interrupt distraction for tasks that uninterrupted distraction can benefit. The only problem is that the length of the podcast can cause a listener to keep working or working out past the optimal healthy time. A listener may feel dehydrate or pull so many weeds that they end up with joint or nerve pain. A listener may end up enjoying a long walk and be so distracted they end up miles from home and need to call a taxi to return home. Chris and Matt have wonderfully eccentric accents and they share just enough personal information to make them relatable, unlike the obnoxiously self-centered gurus they cover. So see that man, we've got just the right parasocial dial it in. That's right. Yeah, we don't let out. <laughs> That's right. You, yeah. You'll hear no complaining about our mothers or our fathers. Or... But how long did your mother breastfeed you? That's <laughs> uh, you should ask her. One, I don't know. Two, if I did. That's not a fit topic of conversation for, <laughs> I don't feel like talking about it. Yes, Dakota and the Gurus, the podcast that acknowledges that some 
household chores take longer than two hours. That's right. That was a five-star review, Matt. I have another five-star review, but I thought this one was a nice nagging one. It's by our time and it's synth wave question mark. And it says one host trashes RoboCop. The other one was on the Synthwave podcast, Embarrassing Time. Embarrassing <laughs> Time. <laughs> yeah, that's really good, but five stars. So I like that, you yeah. know. Uh, we do Trash RoboCop almost every episode, <laughs> despite having watched it recently and realizing it's actually really good. But you know what happened? Because you found out, because I was tweeting to you. Oh, I was yeah. messaging you. Do you want to tell us? Oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> you shouldn't admit this, but I do think you need to. I was getting messages from Matt that he felt inspired from one chat to watch RoboCop. And he, he was like, you know, it's good. Like, I don't remember it being like this. I was particularly impressed by the special effects, Chris. I know. But I thought it was made in the 1980s or something. Correct. And then you mentioned to me about Samuel Jackson's <laughs> performance. <laughs> and Matt, Samuel Jackson wasn't in the RoboCop from the 80s. He was in the remake from a couple of years ago. So you watched the reboot version where modern special effects <laughs> thought that was from the 80s and that is not even a very good film <laughs> so that's the other I, point that you i thought they digitally remastered it or something yeah my god <laughs> <laughs> like so that uh, that was incredible that's yeah. you see you still haven't watched the old one that that's was, the thing that was pretty special yeah i will have to rewatch the old one yeah yeah what was my take on that i can't remember you liked it you, you thought it lost its way at the end, but it was, you know, generally good. Yeah, and it was okay. It did tweak. In my defense, I was drunk at the time, even so. That's, that's standard. You're drunk right now. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of drunkards, Matt, we need to shout out the patrons who pay for the podcast. This is the only thing that can explain that action. So I feel they do deserve thanks, and I've got a bunch of them to thank. So without further ado, Conspiracy Hypothesizers, Ryan, Cosmograph, Peter Rissholm, Charlotte Goodhall, Adam Scher, Kitty Gilbert, XI, Tristan Flock, Miklos Somos, Jim Murray, Marcus, Max Mulitz, Liren Shapiro, Aaron Holder, Lapin, Jenica, Thomas McKenzie, Nathan Smith, Kylie Hudson, Sasha Hamilton, Zach Oliver, Fia Tyner, and Richard Hardy, and I Am Scare. That's them. Thank you, guys. Thank you. No advertisers, just Patreons. That's how we do yeah, it. Yeah, just the, the real people. Mm. Right. I feel like there was a conference that none of us were invited to that came to some very strong conclusions, and they've all circulated this list of correct answers. Now, I wasn't at this conference. This kind of shit makes me think, man. It's almost like someone is being paid. Like when, when you hear these George Soros stories, mm. well, he's trying to destroy the country from within. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Hey, one little episode-related comment, Chris. I mean, listening to Rogan there reminded me that, you know, that's what like a someone who's really conspiratorial sounds like. Like they're very passionate about it. It's a big deal for Rogan. With the people that we covered on Red Scare, they're much more casual about it. I think they're much more like your typical consumer of... It's more a pose as opposed to their lifestyle, right? Like the yeah. conspiracist pose. Yeah. yeah. And like, I'm not saying they're not conspiratorial. They are. It's just... I I don't think it plays a huge role 
for them. Does anything play a, a huge role? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going yeah, it's, on. <laughs> it, like their level of enthusiasm, I think, in general, is not high. Yeah. <laughs> right. That would be against the point. That's true. So there's those people, Matt, then those revolutionary geniuses, the ones who get access to the Decoding Academia series, where we keep our real insights behind the $5 paywall. So that's there. Um, and we have a bunch of them to mention. I will mention, for example, LTB, Dominica, Andre Alessi, Buck, James O'Donnell, Western Roberts, Michael Keelum, Paul Sees, John Trousseau, Thomas Cravalis, Empty Cognizance, Alexander Hess, Jeff Wedding, Ryan Bruno, Alexander Eldon, and Amborg Lou and Elgin Street, the lovely Elgin Street from the yeah. Falling Out podcast. Lovely, lovely. Good old Elgin. A lot of male names there, I think. Have we ever done a gender breakdown of our listenership? I know we have some women because I've met them. No, it's about 50 50. <laughs> Let's call it 50-50. Yeah. Say 50-50. I yeah. don't know. Actually, I haven't seen. We don't have any metrics that tell us that. So no, no. That's it. Just revolutionary geniuses, Matt. That's why. That's that's the important um, social signifier. That's the important identity category that they are in. And we thank you for it. I'm usually running, I don't know, 70 or 90 distinct paradigms simultaneously all the time. And the idea is not to try to collapse them down to a single master paradigm. I'm someone who's a true polymath. I'm all over the place. But my main claim to fame, if you'd like, in academia is that I founded the field of evolutionary consumption. Now, that's just a guess, and, and, and it could easily be wrong, but it, it also could not be wrong. The fact that it's even plausible is stunning. Uh, happy every time. Yeah, the old classic. Now, Galaxy Brain Gurus, as usual, Matt, I don't have a huge haul of them. I mean, maybe we're not selling our the one-on-one -on -one FaceTime that that brings hard <laughs> enough. People do not value that enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they don't, seemingly, or or we've we've reached the ceiling levels. But nonetheless, there, there are some. So Steve presents Pelsky. We thank you, Steve. You are a, a prince amongst men. And Gen B, that's the two I'm going to shout out. The two special little diamonds in the rough there. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, for anyone who is at that, um, you know, at that vaunted tier, come along to the monthly catch-ups. You can ask us questions. We talk about stuff. There's no weird parasocial stuff going on behind the scenes, but you know, you, you might have specific topics, specific questions you want to talk about. So it's good fun. You want to know how many months Matt was breastfed for? That's, that's the place. That's where you get go. the good that's content. That's where you get that info. <laughs> I'll also just throw into the Paramount. I may as well put them in there because they're around. M-E-M, Logan M, and Amanda Kutsuras. Those also would be Galaxy Brain Gurus. So. Fantastic. Just adding them into the power. We tried to warn people. Yeah. Like what was coming, how it was going to come in, the fact that it was everywhere and in everything. Considering me tribal just doesn't make any sense. I have no tribe. I'm in exile. Think again, sunshine. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, there they all are. Thank you, everyone. This is a bit of a long one, but, you know, we'll edit it down. It'll be tight. <laughs> There'll be no uh, uh, unnecessary repeated points. None of that. Yep. It'll be a, a tight episode for you. And we thank Andy Last for his editing efforts. Any problem with anything we say, take it up with 
Andy. That's yep. the person to blame. Be sure to delete all of Chris's vocal fry, Andy. Um, that's the most important job for you. Get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And to everyone else, have a great day. Have a Just enjoy yourself. Just get out there. Have a blessed day. Don't wallow in ironic depression or chug raw milk. Don't chug raw milk. Just drink normal milk. It's yeah. all right. Yeah, get your vaccinations, which whatever the doctor recommends. Don't, don't think about it too much. You don't need to do your own research about it. No, you clearly don't. Not yeah. like this. Save, um, save those it. precious neurons for something more useful, like creating avant-garde art. Yeah, that's it. Well, on that important note for civilization, I bid you yeah, see you, Matt. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. 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 I've wondered if he's been mind-controlled in some way mm-hmm. with just having voices implanted in his head saying, like, the deal is real. Mm-hmm. Just based on my research, it seems like that happens. Mm-hmm. The mind control. It, voice implantation. It's called voice-to-skull technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, they've had it for, like, 30 years or something. And they but, just beam it into your brain? Mm-hmm.